Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. And I'm Matt. And I'm Max. Spectology is a book club podcast. Each month we pick a book, we read it, and we talk about it. This is our post-read episode for Nomon by Nick Harkaway, a book that Max Gladstone, an author in his own right and our guest this month, uh, picked for us to read. So uh, just off the top, there are going to be spoilers. We're going to be spoiling the book pretty much from the very beginning. We'll be talking about the whole book all the way through and kind of jumping around a lot. So if you care about that kind of thing, this is probably not the best episode to start with. You should start with our first episode, which uh, which was our, our two episodes ago, um, 5.1, the Gnomon pre-read, which is sort of like context for the book and what you might want to want to know before you actually get into the book. And that was also a very fun conversation. So hopefully, hopefully you'll enjoy that. Um, you know, just at the top two, uh, we will be talking about this book in depth. It features uh, sharks. It features a fair amount of like sex and violence. And we'll be talking about all of that stuff. I think as far as content warning stuff goes, it's, you know, definitely less intense than some of the like, I guess there are elements of like torture and kind of like losing your agency is kind of a big, a big point. Yeah, of the there might be so some kind of be... body horror or psychic torture stuff that that is right so if you've read the book you kind of know what that is we'll be talking about it if you haven't and you're listening anyway you should be aware that we're kind of there are a lot of things that have unsettling implications but it's not (laughs) yeah it's not presented like a like a medical thriller for example or you know like oh no the surgery gone wrong is something that we're really (laughs) going to get into the sensory detail of content warning if you use the internet or live (laughs) in a modern society <laughs> you may be disturbed. Content warning <laughs> implications, right? Um, so, really quick, just to just to introduce Max, in case you haven't listened to our first episode, you really should. I mean, that's better. But Max, do you want to introduce yourself just a little bit? Sure. Hi, I'm Max Gladstone. I write science fiction and fantasy novels and a bunch of other things. Most notably, probably the Craft Sequence, which is a book of 21st century problems in an epic fantasy world, starting with Three Parts Dead and most recently Ruin of angels so you know gods with shareholders committees and wizards in pinstripe suits and a bunch of people who recently graduated from college trying to figure out how to act ethically in this messed up world <laughs> They're um, great and more recently you've got the fourth season of book burners yes thank you excellent book burners is a science well fantasy serial sort of fantasy procedural serial that i'm co-writing with mer lafferty brian francis slattery margaret dunlap and andrea phillips for Serial Box Publishing. It's a it starts off as a kind of monster of the week episodic short fiction project where you have a bunch of magic hunters working for the Vatican going around the world collecting magic objects and artifacts and saving people from monsters and sticking things that the world isn't ready to understand yet in a box underneath the Vatican and never opening the box ever again, which is, of course, a mission statement that ends up working very, very well for all (laughs) concerned. Um, So the fourth season of that just came out and it's really great. That's how I deal with my psychological problems, too. Yeah. And how is that working out for you? (laughs) I feel great. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) <laughs> great well you know and if cereal box wants to sponsor the podcast <laughs> <laughs> Heard them on a few others. Um, all, all 200 of our listeners might enjoy that. Excellent. It's, it's a really cool thing. It I mean, is, it's, it it's is. very much sort of at the cutting edge of format and uh, design and um, 
forward thinking about the forms that literature and storytelling can take in our world. You know, everybody's carrying around these pocket brains mm -hmm. and connected to the overmind. <laughs> mm -hmm. And how do we maybe think that fiction might evolve new appendages in that in that in that space? Exactly. Right? I mean, it ranges as a reader. I love the cereal box um, application and love cereal box stories because they're so flexible to the way that I consume a lot of my other media. Right. Because um, you can listen and then just pick back up reading and then pick back listening. Yeah. It's totally at the same time. It's totally seamless. It's all built in like cereal box sort of philosophy for an episode is that an episode is its audio um, manifestation as much as it is its textual manifestation. Mm -hmm. So now we're getting into theology here a little bit, I guess. <laughs> um, but as a result, yeah, you can seamlessly go from listening to it on the subway to reading it at your desk. Um, and as a writer, I love working on it because it brings other really talented prose writers with different styles and approaches mm -hmm. into the same room and we're all firing off of one another on all cylinders and I've learned so much right. working on it. It's more like a TV writer's room in that way. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 like TV in a couple of different ways. You get the writer's room aspect so everyone's feeding off of each other's ideas and mm -hmm. then kind of taking the ball and trying to move it another few yards forward. And it's also like TV in that ultimately there's a a slightly different production team responsible for each episode. Like the, mm. the, the different writers function both as writers, but also as kind of directors in the short fiction context. Cause each writer is writing one whole episode that they've discussed the story for with the rest of the team, cleared it. It's been through several rounds of critique, but there's also a unique and individual voice that people bring. Right. It's a really neat aspect. So you like problem. outline together and write individually. Yeah, exactly. And come back through to crit, make sure everything's mm. lining up properly, have whatever on comfortable conversations. I mean, very comfortable <laughs> conversations need to be had. Let, uh, uh, let, let me ask you this. Has the uh, network ever come to you and said, we really need, we love it, but we really need a cartoon alien that floats above Fred's head. <laughs> it's been a few years. It's kind of stale. We just need something. Um, How do you handle that conversation? With Book Burners specifically, um, because it was the first serial that Serial Box ever did, the um, Julian Yap, who's the, one of the co-founders of the company and mm -hmm. is also often in kind of a producer role with a lot of these shows, was actually in the writer's room as we were working things through. Cool. So there was never a cartoon alien suggestion, but there were occasionally <laughs> some things that filled the <laughs> sort of rough, proximate role of studio notes. Right. They were also always really good and i mean well, at least there goes that sponsorship <laughs> <laughs> no i mean it was it, it was one of those situations where um prose fiction is interesting in that you can kind of be as weird as you want which is maybe a good segue into mm -hmm. this book that we're here to discuss <laughs> as um, weird as you want but <laughs> how weird would that be <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know the, the 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 notion of trying to like make sure that um i think julian was often a, a sort of sanity providing impulse mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. room especially as we were starting off trying to make sure that we were getting something that people could really connect with right from, from and i jump. imagine a room full of really creative people you're gonna go totally off the deep end at some point well yeah and i mean the funny thing about fiction um not to get too into the publishing weeds here but um any television series has a certain demand to be mainstream and that like if if only four million people are watching your television show then mm -hmm. you're gonna have a bad time mm -hmm. that's a lot of people mm -hmm. there are very few books that have uh 
product and loss statements, like a, a kind of spreadsheet that the publisher makes th makes up when they're figuring out how to acquire the book that are going to have a bad time if you don't sell even more than a hundred thousand copies. Right. Like it's and because of that, there's so much more room in fiction to do interesting border crossing, edge pushing stuff. Um, it's it's like the entire the entire industry bar maybe. 15 16 authors gets a little bit of this indie feel or, mm. or and could have more it really depends on how the publisher approaches it um, yeah so anyways. you have room for stuff like nomad you have room for yeah. stuff like nomad and i'm so glad we have room for stuff like nomad <laughs> oh god this fuck so nomad nomad actually should we should we we don't i don't know we we kind of sometimes do this like like talk just Off if we liked it yeah. Up front, like like what it like kind of like really initial round table yeah. thoughts and then get oh, into sure. the meat of sure. it. We need, okay, everybody reveal round their the opinion horn. on three. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> Letter grade on three. All right. <laughs> um actually, Max, why don't we start with you? Because we sure. talked about it a little bit. Um, but and you chose the book. So I think I think kind of like a, you know, why yeah, I did mean, you choose it? Oh gosh. Well, I mean, for me, I'd come off of uh, a run of reading a lot of books that were fine. You know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. there's that moment where you have been reading a bunch of books that are perfectly fine strike zone pitches, and then you get something that's just special. It feels like it's operating on a whole different level. And that you keep, for, for me, this whole book, it, it blew the back out of my skull. It was so good. And it felt like I was, it felt like I, I had the feeling that I think true baseball fans sometimes describe when they're watching a no hitter or mm. something that might be a no hitter in process mm -hmm. about a half to two thirds of the way through the book. I was felt like I couldn't breathe, not just because the quality of the writing was superlative or because but like the he, ideas he like might pull it off. He might pull it off. Yeah. And I realized at that point that he might pull it off and I had no idea what pulling it off looked like. <laughs> right. And I, it had been years and I think possibly even a decade since I had an experience quite like that. Not just the sort of on the page sort of text by text line by line suspense but the suspense of form the suspense of feeling like it might all come together mm -hmm. mm. and that was amazing sitting, for me yeah i i identify with that almost like in my mind sitting around the campfire as a kid you don't know enough about stories to know necessarily what kind of story you're hearing yeah and there's a special magic to that beyond not knowing what's going to happen you don't even know what's going on. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and that's what like our conversation a few days ago about Chrono Trigger, which I'm, I'm currently playing through for the first time. Like I'm playing through this like JRPG and I've just never played a JRPG before. I'm like 32 and I've never played a JRPG. Yeah. And so it's a sense of like, what a loser. Like I don't like, like it's both. <laughs> yeah, I'm the loser. I'm the loser. <laughs> <laughs> misspent high school experience playing welcome. i don't know sports <laughs> welcome yeah welcome to the 21st century dude. right welcome to the 20th century yeah, yeah, esports exactly. e but is i um, big now but like i get the, i'm getting the sense like the same sense with that where it's like i just don't know the tropes and like how these stories tend to evolve so not only is it exploding those tropes but i don't even know what tropes it's exploding right. in the first place so the story is like 
the way it's unraveling is just totally new to me. And I, and I, and I got that, that a little bit of that same sense from Nomon where it's like with Nomon, I've read a lot of like experimental postmodern fiction, whether it's David Foster Wallace mm-hmm. or Mark, Mark, uh, Danny Winsky or, or, you know, what, whatever of these, you know, usually Ancient like Calvino, white dudes, right. Echo. Right. Um, who write these kind of like, long narratively kind of like chopped and screwed to borrow Mm -hmm. like hip hop terms, like Mm -hmm. kind of like novels. And, but it's also not quite that. (laughs) Right. I mean, Warren Ellis's quote on the back of the hardcover, which I have here in my hands, quite a nice tome. Um, says that this is the book that'll see Harkaway mentioned in the same breath as William Gibson and David Mitchell. And Mm -hmm. that is a, really good summary of how I felt because it did feel like the book was walking a tightrope for me, especially Mm -hmm. about the midpoint where you feel like you've seen most of the pieces that are on the table. Mm. The tightrope is between, is it going to be an infinite jest or crying of lot 49 Mm -hmm. or even cloud Atlas type of book where the point is kind of the elaborate formal structure and the lack of cohesion, the sort of mm-hmm. irresolvability yeah. of the tension between these elements, which often as a core genre fan, you know, as a sort of um, as somebody who really likes science fiction, quasi-science fiction often can frustrate me about um, Thomas Pynchon, say. Yeah. Um, or is it going to be, so, so is it going to do the David Mitchell thing or is it going to do the William Gibson slash... Um, I don't know, Ursula Le Guin sort of thing where the scientific or science fictional conceits are being wrapped up or taken forward. This sort of ideological argument is being advanced. Mm -hmm. There's closure. Um, And it felt like I was so invested in both projects Mm -hmm. that I didn't know which I wanted to happen (laughs) more. I didn't know whether I wanted this to actually be a sort of multi-layered time travel narrative about a far future alien intelligence that has been, you know, torn apart into a bunch of different pieces and has, has a sort of big cosmic fantasy aspect. I didn't know whether that was what I wanted or I wanted Mieliki Neath's investigation to be the really important core of the thing, mm-hmm. or I wanted some deeper sort of metafictional right. text or it's thing to be going on. She's in the video game. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. In the video. Yes. Yeah, the future video that this game. Other thing is real. Right. You know, what, on what level do I want reality to be right. taking place and I wanted all of them yeah. <laughs> and I wasn't willing to and I couldn't see what a satisfactory outcome would be because all of them felt so worked through and then in the end he manages to actually deliver on mm-hmm. all of them at least for me like it worked on all of those levels for me right down to that epilogue right and I think <laughs> I think I think this is maybe I still have questions yeah I think okay. that's my because I, I literally book for those. Yeah. I finished this an hour ago, maybe. <laughs> like, oh God! I Max, couldn't speak for us, a couple you hours. You warned after. us it was long, and like <laughs> I should have taken that to heart a little bit more than I did. I mean, Matt, you, fin- you stayed good. up late. Yeah, I stayed up late right? last night finishing it. Um, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think I would stop having questions after a certain while. I mean, all right. Mm-hmm. Well, let's real quick, Adrian. Yeah. Did you like it? I did. I have. I don't even know if it's critiques so much as like outstanding questions that I want to like talk through with people. Mm -hmm. Matt, did you like it? I did. 
Very much. I wonder, my biggest question is, I wonder if I liked it as much as you guys did. I wonder, I wonder if I love it or not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's I a definitely, good one. I think, I think, I think you and I are similar there. I definitely really, really liked it and I have enormous respect for it. It is an incredible achievement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think definitely what, however you feel about it. Um, and I'm still working out sure. I, what I, that achievement and, is. And exactly. maybe part of it is, you know, just where I am with relationship status with this book. I mean, maybe it's just my... <laughs> it's complicated. Right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe I maybe I need some time, you know? Yeah, sure. This feels like the kind of book that I think I would have enjoyed it more if I weren't rushing over the last couple of days. Because I read the first quarter or so very kind of lackadaisically. And that was very fun kind of getting like looped into the world of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read the last like two thirds pretty much over the last 48 hours. <laughs> I pretty much crammed this that's, book. That's like, a lot of reading to like, do. I'm, I'm getting flashbacks to like college. Dreams yeah. for a while. Although in college, yeah. I just wouldn't have finished the book and I would uh. be bullshitting during the seminar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I was I was on a panel at ReaderCon a few years ago with uh, it was a it was a celebration of of Dahlgren and one mm. of the uh, participants was chosen to be someone who had never read Dahlgren beautiful before you know who hadn't been like revisiting the book again and again over decades right and uh, this particular person read the whole thing on the train ride up from New York (laughs) and then was just (laughs) you know in full was talking eloquently and passionately about it but was definitely in full blown like still compiling the form of this thing in head definitely won't be when i was talking about this wow it was great a transitionary connectome you know it was it was fantastic though and i think the the instinct there was was very solid because you had Mm -hmm. a bunch of people who'd even in my case i just read it for the first time a year before but who'd been living with and through the book and the way that you live with and through works of great art right and you had one person who was still just like, what just happened? <laughs> wow. <laughs> in, in that sort of full breath reaction to it. So oh, that's good. So that's I, have, good. I have so many things that I want to talk about, several yeah. of which you inspired me. I have so many things I want to talk about, several of which you inspired me to think of in the last two minutes. As you <laughs> Fantastic. Um, one thing that I definitely want to talk about is... Uh, Pomo stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. Pomoness. I, like, we narrative. already talked so much about that, but I have like there's so many more things, things to talk it, about. On it, top it's of just, it, there's just so much to say. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, oh. another thing I want to talk about is is um uh the mystery story genre, mystery story genre, and like mm-hmm. how this like mystery story works. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. and the, that also, I mean, that. connecting, of course, to the Pomo story as right, mystery, because, right? right? Because I think there's this fundamental connection that I maybe never appreciated fully before between mystery stories, especially police procedurals, mm-hmm. and especially the kind of noirish police procedural that this book, you know, clearly yeah. takes so much inspiration from. And postmodern literature in general right i think there's a really profound connection there absolutely i mean that's it's this is giving me shades to my first infuriated encounter with paul oster when i was Mm. like 23 (laughs) or 24 somebody gave me i think it was it was steph actually my wife who gave me a copy of the new york trilogy and i was in china at the time and i was reading like obsessively um and 
I got the New York trilogy, having had no prior experience with Paul Auster whatsoever, no orientation. I was like, oh, detective novel, great, cool. Because, of course, you know, I think this is the Penguin, one of the, um, those Penguin editions that has kind of the cartoons on mm. the cover. And it I think was I sort of one. made up to look very much like a sort of... 50s detective novel right. or something that has a 10 cent mark in the in the, the air of chandler <laughs> right exactly and so i was reading it expecting it to be a detective story and for everything to kind of have that detective story coming together feeling at the end and it was instead this expansive postmodern meditation on fictional characterness and mm-hmm. detective mm. as novelist and there's a point where the detective literally goes to talk with Paul Auster, comma, the novelist who has showed up as a as a subject mm-hmm. in the investigation. And Paul Auster, comma, novelist appears at the front door, like answers his front door with his pen <laughs> dripping because, of course, he's writing the book mm-hmm. that you're reading mm-hmm. right now. And in retrospect, this is enormously clever. As a 23-year-old who thought he was getting a mystery novel, I was furious. <laughs> but but yeah, so I guess what I'm trying to say is there's so much interpenetration there um, in the, the sort of attempt to, the detective stories attempt to construct meaning and mm. the the postmodern novelists attempts to make that construction of meaning feel more complicated. I, I don't know. Well, and I think too, and and this might even be echoing something that you mentioned in our last episode, but the the... I think of infinite jest when I think of this and the fact that like there, the reader is the detective Yes, because the plot actually almost entirely happens off screen and and including especially the, the, the climax just isn't written. Yeah. Like the climax just is not actually written. You can infer all of it. You know exactly what happens if you like spend the time to like be a detective and work out what the narrative actually is. Mm-hmm. But the but it doesn't tell you ever. You you have to be the one to dig through the clues in the text and figure that out. And so I think there's some of that too where like you know uh, uh, the main detective character is almost in certain ways like the audience as well. Yeah. Like you're seeing it through her eyes and you, you know, and she is actually the audience, the reader, the, the whatever content, hashtag content mm. consumer <laughs> of these, you know, flashbacks that she's going through. Yeah, I think yeah. That this gets to the sort of fundamental connection between detective stories and postmodern fiction, which is that postmodern fiction um, in its nature is very interested in questions of uh, understanding what's going on and mm. understanding and, and semiotics and meaning. And um, the detective is uh, this, or at least the detective as depicted in detective genre stories, in particular your Raymond Chandler's and your mm-hmm. uh, Hammett, yeah, your Dashiell Hammetts, and, and all the all the you know great classics of of the twenties through forties. The detective is this character who exists to wander around and assign meaning to things, and. Uh, what happens when you have written enough of the enough of the sort of enough of those stories is that you progress beyond their them, them simply assigning meaning in a in a in a in a one to one function way like oh this means this that's obvious and clear in black and white you progress beyond that eventually because it becomes boring and you need to mm. provide something new and so you progress into situations that are a lot more complicated than that and thus you get into scenarios where in the big sleep who who knows like who knows what's going on i mean there are a lot of things that could be going on there are some we know maybe are going on and it just becomes there's a direct line from um the detective as semiotician mm-hmm. in 
classic detective genre stories to um, the person wandering around in a postmodern story or the reader or the author wandering around in a postmodern story trying to assign meaning to things. Right. And yeah. I think uh, th- I might be jumping a little bit too far ahead here. We might want to say this. For later, jump, but the, I mean, uh, if, if there's any <laughs> book in which to jump around. <laughs> right. You know, usually we have a like outline and we talk through the plot in these like post read episodes. And we were just like the more authentic thing to do is off the dome and like just the whole plot is available yeah. like like a scrubber you know kind of working back we're here just, forth through we're just it. jumping in and out of each other's domes. <laughs> yes a, a, literally a piece of composition history for this book that i find fascinating is that apparently he wrote it in successive layers on all of the parts simultaneously oh so rather than writing for example the whole first section with constantine the banker mm-hmm. and then writing the whole first section with athenaeus the sort of um, alchemist the, the alchemist yes um he'd write you know a few paragraphs or a few pages i think of one and then switch to the other one and then switch to oh. uh, so Bechelet. he almost he he wrote it as Beleke painted his paintings yes yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. sort of bits and bits and that's yeah. one of the reasons he said in this interview of him that i'm interview with him that i read and i forget honestly where it was um that allowed him to kind of make those interrelated connections sometimes hundreds of of pages apart you know one thing that i've seen this is this is very old this is from when he was writing the gone away world and it i think it it it, it's it speaks very much to the way gone away world works but also to the way this book book works it was some writing advice harkaway gave like in the early 2000s was that if you're having plot problems at the end probably where you want to fix it is at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Like probably if you're having problems with the plot at the end of your novel, what you really need to do is go and like change something at the beginning so that it works because you have access to this whole time period. You can change things at the beginning to make them look like you've been setting this up the whole time. Um, And I really like that. And I, and I got this sense that like, even if he, you know, cause he talks about how he wrote this, without a, a without a plot without mm-hmm. a plan without a map in front of him for how he was going to finish it but i get the sense that you know once he had it there it becomes this you know game almost of like interlocking the things together tighter than they than they were initially right yeah a game you say a game indeed a game is a foot <laughs> there's a game is a foot and a game is in the book oh but really really quickly like one of the books that this this the going back to the the point from a while ago um one of the books that this really reminded me of that we didn't talk about all is umberto echoes uh Foucault's pendulum oh which i haven't read actually oh okay so Foucault's pe- turn in my Pomo card. Well, I mean, I haven't read any of those stair books either, so we're, <laughs> we're fair there. Nor actually, I haven't read Dahlgren. I've read bits and pieces of it, mm. but I've never experienced the whole thing all the way through. So, to me, Dahlgren is a bit of like a ghost book to to pull from from this. Sort of like oh, it's yeah. this book that like exists theoretically, but I've never. <laughs> I know more about it than I do of it. Um, but yeah, uh, um, uh, the Foucault's Pendulum is about um, this group of people who begin writing these conspiracy theories for this like small press that they publish in order to like sell it to crazy people because like crazy people <laughs> eat up conspiracy theories. Sure. And as they're writing these conspiracy theories, they accidentally realize that they're coming true and they're actually investigating <laughs> either like either they're creating it from whole cloth and thus like making it exist in the world. They're just coincidentally writing conspiracy theories that are actually true 
or like people are reading them and making them true. And you never know which of these it actually is, which I think is, you know, really interesting given the, the, the chamber of ISIS in this way that it like pops up only where people have already kind of like invented it in the first place. Sure. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It's some... so good. The, the other book that it made me think of a lot was, uh, uh, if on a winter's night, a traveler, mm. I could not get away from thinking mm. about that while I was reading it. Um, Italo Calvino. Yeah, Italo Calvino's If on a Winter Night, Winter's Night a Traveler, which is a book about um, books. It's a book about uh, someone trying to find a book that they cannot find. And every time they think they found it, it's a different book. And each of those books may be connected to each other. Mm -hmm. And the narratives may be connected to each other, but it's unclear. And it's unclear which narrative. And it's unclear if the narrative about the guy looking for the book is one of just one of these narratives. Uh, and it's unclear how they all relate to each other. Well, also, and the, and the narrative of them. the of the guy looking for the book is told in the second person. So it's you, the reader, are looking for that's a right. book. Oh, that's great. Oh, <laughs> yeah, good, it, good. It's, it's, ter it's terrific. It's and really good. It's, it's a, it's and a yet you are holding book. a book called If on a Winter's <laughs> yep, Night of exactly, right. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's exactly. Connecting both of these i think in a little bit of a way i'm reminded of a conversation that um andrea phillips who's one of my co-writers on book burners was having on twitter i think um with so andrea was involved in writing several of the early um transmedia ar games mm -hmm. um you know, like she wasn't involved like in, i heart bees or yeah whatever. i heard bees is a good example mm. of that kind of genre right. um and you'll remember that in the sort of early days of this process it was this sort of exercise in seeding conspiracy mm -hmm. into yeah. the internet and yep. the idea and it was also marketing and it was also yeah. marketing <laughs> right the idea being to give people who were playing the game a sense that they could never be outside of the game that any um, any number of news developments or weird stories that would pop right. up on their news feed could actually be implied results of the game. And the conversation was about how uncomfortable a lot of people who were involved in the early days of that moment are with you know our present reality yeah, like fake news and not i mean not just fake news but also things like i mean you know q and on and mm. the um the uh, sort of uh. interconnected conspiracy sub universes that malicious actors have started to develop right. to entice people into worlds that provide a kind of gnostic second reality that mm. is unfalsifiable because mm -hmm. any new piece of information any new development just reinforces the mm -hmm. sort of conspiracy narrative mm -hmm. um, it reminds me of uh the what's the the connected tv universe uh oh god the kid the charlie something universe charlie westfall universe yeah the charlie westfall universe the no, idea I don't know what this is so this is a meme I'm probably um, getting the kid's last name wrong. I apologize I think it's for Westfall. true yeah, TV. Universes. I don't remember either. But this can be looked up on uh, Know Your Meme or anywhere yeah. fine meme knowledge is found. <laughs> uh, the concept, the though, is... The, yeah, the concept is that um, uh, there are... You, you can invent... It is possible to relatively easily invent connections between different television fictional universes such that they are all... Oh, connected and yeah, in yeah, the yeah. same universe right right this and is people the, like, have made maps yeah you know 
graph diagrams you know with air you know and the kid is like one kid at the end of some tv show like it was all his dream or something right. like that yeah so there's, like every tv show ever has been his dream is right. the yeah right. i've seen this before right? right and then it sort of also makes use of the fact that famous actors will occasionally have famous turns as characters in multiple shows or not famous you know kelsey mm-hmm. Grammer, obviously in both I mean, those are sequels to each other, but in, uh, right, in right, both right, right. Cheers, Cheers and, and Frasier, Frasier's um, sequel to Cheers. But, you know, also um, he has been in other television shows. And right. what is the connection there? And, and the number of <laughs> prominent like, character actors who, you know, are, nom- are tend to play like cop types right. will mm-hmm. sometimes be cast as cops with identical names oh, yeah. Yeah. in identical sh- in shows that are going oh, on all at the same time. Yeah, especially like Smith, you know. Yeah. Officer Smith, you know, something like that, right. where the same character actor happens to be Officer Smith, or maybe it's even an inside joke on the part of the writer because they knew about yeah. the or the casting director right. who is like the casting director on Nine Hundred Two One Zero, but then was the casting <laughs> right. director on the X Files or something like right. that because people right. move right. around a bunch. And, right. and at first, this was hilarious because it's a funny internet thing, but then you know you get into to the world of today where there's so much scripted television mm-hmm. and so much incredibly dense awareness of intertext intertextuality and the various narratives of different shows and you've got these showrunners who have careers that exist entirely you know in the they they they, they exist in a space where what they're doing is uh, operating the, the level of abstraction that they operate at is the show itself even a, an even higher level of abstraction than like an executive producer mm-hmm. and you know you start to think maybe there is a little bit more intentionality there than there used to be in terms of connecting mm-hmm. loosely some of these shows to each other especially you know somebody like jj abrams to what <laughs> yeah, extent has he had that thought doing, i would yeah. bet he has had that thought and mm-hmm. then you know does it matter I mean, no, but right. <laughs> and you get sort of for better or for worse specific episodes or lines of television that are being written in specific response to fan communities. Right. I mean, yeah, there's a, I mean, that's mm-hmm. the J.J. Abrams lost thing in particular. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I see. I wasn't I wasn't a lost person. Um, oh, I was. I never got lost. <laughs> so to be speak. a lost podcast. Very easily. Lost is. <laughs> <laughs> is there is there an accepted lost fan term? I think of I think losty. I'm lost. I'm not sure. All it's right. been so long since, since that was really like a fan community. Oh, OK. Yeah. Reasonable. <laughs> it's just still like sort of people wandering around in the wilderness. <laughs> yeah. I, well, that's what it felt like after that last season yeah. kind of blew everything apart, but it also did so on purpose mm-hmm. because like the, the generally accepted idea now is that like more or less the fans did actually figure out where they're, they were planning to go with the show at the end. And so they kind of had to scramble to be like, no, that's not what we were doing. Oh yeah. No. Did no, they just, have to scramble to do that? They well, didn't. They, yeah, again, this is all like fan conspiracy, but the, the conspiracy is that that's what they ended up doing. The it beautiful thing much worse because of it. Sorry. The, no, no, the, be, the beautiful thing about this anecdote about lost is that it is exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm thinking about um, the uh, my wife is rewatching Stephen Moffat's seasons of Doctor Who right now in preparation for the launch of the 13th Doctor with the new showrunner and Jodie Whittaker coming on as the Doctor. Very exciting time for the franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because she one of the things that's interesting about her rewatch is that she's not really on Twitter, is largely insulated from the capital D discourse around Doctor Who, around Stephen Moffat for, or Stephen, for the best. Yes, exactly. I think I mean, I think certainly for the <laughs> yeah. best. But it means that um, 
there, there are several lines, especially later in Matt Smith's tenure, that are specifically Stephen Moffat being furious about feminist reaction and legit mm-hmm. criticism mm-hmm. of Doctor Who and of the way he's run the show in the person of various characters or in just sort of snide slide right. jokes about Twitter. He does the same thing in Sherlock. Too. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's I remember so that. obnoxious. It's, it's really, really obnoxious. Bad. Right. And the funny thing about it is for my wife, who's insulated from that sort of aspect of things, the joke is just that, Oh yeah, Matt's, you know, Matt, Matt Smith's doctor just said like Twitter is horrible and Twitter is horrible. She knows this to be the case. It is a 100% true thing about Twitter and undeniable. And and so like everyone on Twitter knows it and constantly bemoans it. Right. Exactly. And so like, that's the joke for her. And she's like, that's, that's great. And I, it, it, it at the same time is true. It is a right. good joke. That's Twitter in general is horrible, but nevertheless, it was intended as a specific middle finger to very specific right. corner of Twitter that had very specific grievances. So it reminds me a lot of, I don't know, like Aaron, it, it's wild to see how we've got to this particular moment where you can have showrunners engaging in, um, very weird multi-front feuds with very specific critique podcasts right from like the late 90s where aaron sorkin is pissed off about television without pity in that one episode of the west wing oh my god <laughs> but, but like you know it's or the just, seeds it develops and the beautiful thing about all of this is that it is postmodern fiction come uh true yeah right, so right, you right, have right. yeah you yeah. have we, we exist in a world where it is completely normal and indeed you know, we could be having this conversation totally separate from the context of, the, of a podcast about the book Nomad. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I'm sure right. I've we had, kind of are at this yeah. point. <laughs> well, but I, I've, I've had this conversation. Elegant, <laughs> elegant attempts to yank the rudder there. Yeah, yeah, there. No, no. Yeah, I, 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 I've had this conversation, yeah. though, with, with both of you and many right. other people uh, about television, about, you know, narrative today. Um, we're in a world where it's just completely normal for, you know, there to be ongoing narratives that exist that we are invested in as consumers of popular culture where the author of the author of that narrative has been exploded into this disaggregated mass of like multiple humans mm-hmm. or are they one human or how much intentionality exists in like different people how much of control does a show showrunner have what's the nature of an auteur in a context of a writer's room at the same time that that author you know entity whatever it is if it exists if it's alive if it's dead is interacting constantly but with this reader which itself is also yeah the reader is also this (laughs) disaggregated mob that has multiple uh orthogonal like axes of existence Mm -hmm. there's the twitter axis right the discourse which you have you know given a capital d but you know actually isn't one thing it's right? True, right there's this you know twitterverse it's really but... it's really it's really sort of like twitch plays pokemon at this point <laughs> so on, on all directions i think know? too i think there's also this element that is just you know that, that we're circling around which is i mean clearly as as you're being on the podcast shows like authors are themselves often fans and themselves yeah. like readers and content consumers just as much as they are creators and so even like they're in discourse with each other as well as with the discourse. Yeah. And like a lot of this happens, happens in that way. Um, yeah. I mean, this book, for example, Noman being in many ways, a attempt at making a 21st century cyberpunk novel. That's mm-hmm. not the yeah, only thing it's definitely. doing, but it's yeah. something that's trying to work with all the tropisms yeah. mm-hmm. and the sort of the, the raw, 
pulsating material that made cyberpunk and say what does that look like yeah and to kind of grit its teeth and keep going further than somebody else might be you know willing Mm -hmm. or able to go right there's a lot of uh a lot of books that i've seen feel like they start in a place that's sort of similar to this Mm -hmm. but very few keep going as far and kind of keep marching through you know against the headwind Mm -hmm. of uncertainty as far as this book does yeah Before we dig into that, I just wanted to go back to the Stephen Moffat thing really quickly because there's a really great YouTube video by this guy called H Bomber Guy called Sherlock Sucks and Here's Why or something like that. I just watched this. Right, right. And and I thought that I thought that he did a really good good job. If like if people are interested in this like previous piece we just talked about of like kind of breaking apart specifically how Stephen Moffat interacts with his fans through his fiction Mm -hmm. and like the ways in which like Oftentimes it's bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> At least I, I stopped watching Doctor Who during his run because he wrote like the best individual episodes of Doctor Who and then like took over the series. And like for me, it just fell apart mm-hmm. entirely. It was like all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's no actually like there there behind your curtain. Yeah. And like that works for individual episodes and falls apart when you have to like keep a long running narrative going. Yes, I, I could I could populate an entire podcast of doctor who <laughs> <laughs> this uh, point. Yes. But, i think we all have but, right. but so yeah. anyway, let's let's go to the so one thing that i really really liked about this book that you know may as i think about it more may turn out to be like i loved about this book um i'm still working that out is the way that it tried to address the way that it tried to address some of these questions of how do we feel questions that arise from us living in this world that we live in now where this is how authors exist and this is how readers exist this is how narratives exist all around us um what you know do we like this is this good do we Mm -hmm. feel happy about this Mm -hmm. how do we live in this how do we understand our own identity in this and instead of just asking the questions he also tries to answer them which is really cool i love that i don't know if i have a a great grasp of what I think his answers are or the direction he's sort of telling people to go is. But in as much as I understand it, it's, you know, he, he seems to believe simultaneously that there are, there are really terrible things about how narrative works in our society now about how stories are, uh, Trojan horses for uh, organizations, groups of people, companies, governments to manipulate us to terrible ends mm-hmm. um, all around us constantly and that we don't necessarily have any defenses put up against this. And that's terrible. It's terrible morally and it's also going to lead to bad results, etc. And he also believes, I think, you know, it seems like that there's something that there are beautiful things in postmodernity that postmodernity is has you know types of flowers growing in it that you can't find on in other places um and and i think maybe one way to put maybe one way to sum up how he feels about this is that we need new defenses Mm -hmm. but we shouldn't try to leave this country right Mm -hmm. i don't know i i that that brings up and i i feel like i'm being very negative uh but one thing when I was reading this book that I was really worried about is like, 
I often have a problem with books that are just about like the power of storytelling, mm-hmm. like these kind of like postmodern books that really at the end of the day is all they're doing is telling stories about stories. And yeah. I, I often think of this as, again, to be kind of negative, sorry, uh, the Neil mm-hmm. Gaiman effect, oh, sure, yeah. where it's like all of his like his last 10 novels have just been about how like the storyteller is the most important person. Right. And like, I love Sandman. I, I love some of his like early novels. But then you get to this point where it's just like. It'd be a little wankery, like a little, a little like, you know, it's like talking again and again about how important stories are. And it felt like Nomon did some of that, but it also engaged with like the bad, right? It's like narrative is powerful and that's not just like a force for good. It's a force for like, like it's an amoral force at the end of the day and right. can be used for a lot of different things. And I, I actually, I really did enjoy that about this book. I think I'm still again I just finished reading it I still feel like I don't know where he actually let's <laughs> let's let's do this if you guys don't mind what was true like usually I like like for this kind of thing it's like you know like what was actually true or the plot holes that kind of thing doesn't it doesn't yeah. interest me that much but I think it's actually important here to figure out like what was the true layer of this so my sense of what's going on if you what is truth really is truth unchanging law we both have truths anyway um so (laughs) setting aside beauty beauty, truth yeah setting aside the pilot and the keats questions um i think if you were to posit that um, becca's section is taking place right now in london Mm -hmm. and you were I think Becca's story is more or less true or seems to be pretty representative of right, the characters. Right. And you were to put a camera on Annabelle Becca on, on his, his daughter and just follow her along mm-hmm. for the next 50 years or so. What you would see is she and Coulson build the, um, build the fire judges, build fire spine, right. build witness. Right. And in the end, Colson has sort of pushed witness and fire spine specifically into this very fascist controlling direction. Oh, and you think Colson has done that? Not Annie. I think, I think Annie may have been involved in the building of it, but Annie is trying to take it apart. Like I think oh, that the woman okay. who's being, who's on the slab in the final sections there is Annabelle Bekele, mm-hmm. yeah. who is being um, brain invaded by yeah. Coulson, by Coulson. Through, the, through right. a witness-like object. Right. right. So I think what we're meant to take from that and from the other um, few glimpses we get of the outside world is that Mielke Neath's world is pretty close to the actual status quo of the universe that we're occupying mm-hmm. um, in the sort of real like physical reality layer. Right. And what's happened is Annie has set something up that's going to dismantle fire sign and make public what's actually going on here. And Coulson is trying to stop her by getting inside her head. She understands that and anticipates it and has set up this elaborate trap right. that forces witness to read into itself the viruses that she's set up right. to dismantle it 
And so Nomon is part of that trap, is right. part of that idea in her right. head. Nomon is not actually a Coulson narrative. It's one of her narratives. Right. Whereas Neith is, is Coulson's, his Coulson's is narrative. narrative. Yeah. We're supposed to think that Nomon is Coulson's narrative. Right. Coulson and the reader are also supposed to think that right. they're... And, and so the reader is basically in Coulson's perspective for most, most of, of the this. book right. because the reader is sort of trying to stitch all of this together. Yeah. Right. In the same way that Coulson is Neith... Yes. trying to stitch it all together so that he can blow up her plan as opposed to like have the plan blow up on yeah. him. Right. But, exactly. But, but I think the question, what is true is like, is a very good question to ask about this because I don't think the answer is that's like, um, that right. is, so th that I would say right. is the, is the, um, you know, the that is default. a plausible reading. <laughs> that is the default standard, like thing that's happening. Right. But I don't know. That's not the only thing that's true. Right. Like I think the book also in the final step asks, us to think of itself as a book like i think right the final moment of noman addressing the reader and even the eye that shows up in the right first or second page right right uh, that we sort of initially think is regno lonrot and who yeah. is noman sort of mm -hmm. um do 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 let's see where is it I think that shows up in some of Neath's like final chapters too. The very There's end a few well. eyes yeah. out of yeah. nowhere. Instead of foresight, the inspector gets a migraine. This is on the second page. And in that small difference, she sets her feet on the pattern that must eventually lead her to all the things I have already mentioned, but most fatefully, fatally to me. And then right. again, the next thing that we get is I can see my mind on the screen for the first time. So that's another eye that feels like it's coming out of nowhere. Mm, yeah. That's Hunter's eye. But then so, so like, I think it's Noman, the book, talking to us like right, literally one right. of the things that's going on is we are reading a book the book is attempting to get us to do stuff right and it will leave itself in us to propagate itself <laughs> i just love i love noman the character in mm -hmm. this so mm -hmm. much for that exact reason yeah. like for me i'd be interested in your angles on this too noman's perspective on the coming future universe, right? The sort right. of science fictional, multi-bodied, right. um, which you can see is just this like clear next step. Once you once you put the you know monitoring in everyone's heads, you turn it in on itself, and everyone is just the same person all right. of a sudden. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you've got. I think Noman's perspective on cosmology, that at some point there's going to be a new universe that's born within mm -hmm, our universe. It's mm -hmm. going to eat it up from the inside. And then, um, and then we will all die. Everything we are will be replaced by the next universe. The next universe might be better than us, but ultimately like fuck, fuck it. it. <laughs> I'm going to survive. I'm going to hollow that universe around and wear it like a hat <laughs> and get the sort of turducken hat image. Yeah. Of universes. <laughs> Literally turducken. Yeah. turducken. Yeah. I laughed out it's loud at great. that point. <laughs> I, I love yeah. it. And I, I read it as a response of someone who, like me, really likes fundamentally enlightenment-derived civil society with a separation of powers and not fascism, looking forward, looking at a coming future that has a that is a lot more authoritarian, that mm -hmm. is deriving a lot more of its fundamental structure from authoritarian technological systems. And seeing that as one of the possible consequences of progress and saying, 
fuck it. Like, I do not want that future. I am going to set myself to the death against that future. Mm -hmm. That is so interesting. That is totally, I see that. And that seems like totally plausible to me. That's completely not what I was thinking when I was reading Noman. No one, what I was thinking is, oh, Noman is narrative. Oh yeah. yeah. Noman is, Noman, Noman wants to get in my head when I read another book. That's also true. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I love that. That's really cool. Um, and also Noman is no, no. So, so the other thing that Noman was to me, which is sort of, Related to what you're talking about, but not quite the same thing, which is that no one is the nature of fighting to survive. Yes. As opposed to accepting, as opposed to finding a way to, to live. Mm-hmm. So no one, so not specifically with re- regard to any particular political question or even a set of political questions, but with regard to how do we live, no one is the approach that says what we do is whatever is necessary to ensure our survival. Mm-hmm. And that is a troubling as well as inspiring mm-hmm. way to be. No one is never completely uh, comfortable, a character to be around. Whenever I was reading, an, or at least for me, whenever I was reading a Noman chapter, I felt, you know, I was like a little uneasy. It's the shark, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. Noman is the fin, yeah. you know, which I mean, actually in this book, the shark does not kill anyone. Yes. You know, the shark doesn't, <laughs> actually eat anyone right well it does eat someone but it doesn't kill but it doesn't kill them right yeah and the shark in fact is a great source of power um and fear and i think that is sort of the way that i think about that is that that is how we can feel about our own need to survive Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. the shark is us trying to survive by any means necessary in this sort of cold calculating way but it's also it's also a godhead Mm-hmm. you know, uh, mm-hmm. a source of our, um, divinity. And it's also like <clears throat> the other crazy thing about Noman, which I love is the very end, the lights go out and Neith thinks that Neith is going to stop existing, but Neith doesn't stop existing. Even though Neith is a fiction, mm-hmm. Neith doesn't stop existing. What actually happens to the fiction after the book cover closes and the lights go out, even though they didn't really, but they did yeah. in the book. Mm-hmm. Is that no one comes and takes Neath away with all the other characters? <laughs> yes, which I right. fucking love. He's that. got he's having an escape. Oh. Having an escape hatch. He's an <laughs> escapologist, right? right. Yes, yes. Right. They, they they sneak out into your skull. Yep. and into the outside world. And that's where you. they'll be when you open the next book. <laughs> right. Right. They're waiting for you. It's so great. It sneaks in, and this is what separates it in, in my mind. And you're absolutely right. I, like for me, the in that it's beyond any one particular political moment it's something that's more than well, that i don't think you're wrong at all but i just i just that's what i was thinking when i was reading yeah it. yeah totally totally but but i think i think it's all sort of part of the jewel of the book for mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. um god there's so much to so many places to go <laughs> from there um it's they that they escape that it is fundamentally a book about escapology and escape artistry in the context of a science fictional detective story. Who is the murderer? In the context, who is the detective? Right. Who is fleeing from whom? It all depends right. on your perspective. Right. In the con- and yet it manages to do all of that and then have like meaningful answers to it. Meaningful answers in many different directions that aren't just like, I don't know, man, it's a postmodern novel. <laughs> it's not just that, oh, the center doesn't hold, which is, I think, the view. I mean, if you, if you posit, it's very difficult to sort of know where to get traction in a world where... Yeah narrative is complicated like this and yeah. 
and there are, you know, no centers. And for a long time, you know, it seems like a lot of different authors didn't know what to do with that or they did different things that they didn't go, but they didn't go that far with any of their proposed solutions. Um, But you do, I think with this book, you do see a way, an approach where, you know, he, he, he sort of just keeps going. That's yeah. that's a, a dominant you know thing for me. And you, you, you got to keep and, going or you die. That's the shark situation. You man. You keep <laughs> so going. okay, so okay, so we so there's this there's this you know incredibly complicated narrative uh, space that we're in, um, and there's all these complicated operations. You know, there's identity operations, there's mirror operations, mm-hmm. there's inverse operations, there's all these in, in, this complicated set of operations. But can we make theorems here? Yes, yes, mm-hmm. we can. If we don't get frightened by mm-hmm. the complexity, um, we can mm-hmm. we can proceed. It may be very difficult. It may be slow going, but we can proceed and we can notice things like, okay, suppose, if you will, we take this all the way and we imagine that narrative is completely malleable and that there exists and there could exist technologies to completely manipulate narrative inside a person and to completely deatomize that person and mm-hmm. and and treat it as simply a, a a piece of a larger entity or of no entity at all suppose all these walls are completely gone okay what kinds of interactions can exist for that that entity that maybe it only thinks it's an entity how could that entity fight back and that's i guess that's mm. maybe that's the, the the best thing about this book it, it talks about fighting back yes it unlike any number of other sort of postmodern dystopias that I can point to um, that yeah that the goal here is to find an effective vector for resistance and this I think mm-hmm. also separates it from the kind of power of story books that you were talking about mm-hmm. earlier Adrian um, there is a tendency in fantasy especially to come down to you know storytelling is how we get out of this or storytelling is the best and you know, I don't know. I mean, as a writer, I often worry that that feels very self-serving. Like, certainly, storytelling is important, but also perhaps plumbing is is important. <laughs> um, you know, so organizing yeah. is is nice. It is good to have phones, right? Clean drinking water. These are all yeah. vitals for the revolution. Yeah. Antibiotics. So, so like for this to make the point that storytelling is can be an enormously effective vehicle for resistance Mm -hmm. vehicle for fighting back against all forms of fascism and domination and here's how right yeah it's not just but also here's how it's dangerous like it's it's a weapon that either side can use yes absolutely absolutely and suppose that the other side is using it as powerfully as we can imagine them using Mm -hmm. it suppose that they're using it to literally destroy everything Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay Fight back against that. Here's okay. One, one way you can do it is get inside it. All right, yep. you're inside it. All right. One way you can do it is you 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 corrupt it without it noticing. I mean, these are these are metaphors that are maybe easier to understand today than they would have been 30 years ago, where people are familiar with these ideas from computer science, maybe, or they're familiar mm-hmm. with them from the fact that narrative is so exploded already in our, in the culture everywhere. It was you know it was something I was thinking while reading this book, which is just such a like you know example of no mon like taking over my own thinking yeah, yeah. was. Man, I, I, what would it have been like to read this book thirty years ago, oh, or God, like fifty yeah. years ago, or like even you know, like, ten like years even, ago? Yeah, right, you know? right. Like, like, what if you know when the iPhone first came out? Right, right. It would have seemed like a weird flight of fancy, maybe. Right. I, mean, I don't think maybe. it. W- I, don't I don't know, know if it would have made. 
I wouldn't have taken. I wouldn't have way. taken it seriously. I think right. one of the biggest things to me is that I wouldn't have taken this sort of threat seriously. It would have right. seemed like a kind of. It would have seemed like an evil wizard, maybe. Yeah. You know, like okay, mm-hmm. in the context of the story, yeah, it wouldn't have you know. cl- as clearly been a like not just a simple, but like an analogy for something in the mm-hmm. real world. It would have been this kind of like, oh, interesting, like you know, in the same way that like so many cyberpunk stories talk about like you know code as these viruses and like you know programs as animals and like the yeah, the yeah. sea of like information or whatever it's like this would have felt like i'm like oh okay that's not that's a fun science fictional thing as opposed to like oh i see this is you know like nomon is you know q or fake news <laughs> right it's, it's, it's right it here right, right now right yeah. it's um you know daniel abraham uh fantasy author daniel abraham and also science fiction author i guess through james, the vehicle of james s.a Corey. um oh, oh okay yeah he is he's um has a saying about genre. He says that genre is where fears pool, which is a saying that I really cool like. Um, and especially it, it captures the thing that happens at the dawn of a genre where someone takes a sort of accumulation of fear stuff, stuff that they're unsettled by that unsettles their set of the mm-hmm. universe and tries to build structures around them. I think there's like a sort of water, there's a waterworks of fear that gets constructed at the birth of a genre. Like, and you can see this with Dracula. That know? book, mm-hmm. by the way, E.L. Dr. O. Waterworks, great genre novel uh, about all these things too. Yes, oh my God. Uh, it's all connected. Uh, everything's, it's all part of this. No one is here. Um, yeah. but the end of this podcast is we're just going to fade to black and get eaten. Yes. <laughs> yes. Or By were no we man. already eaten? <laughs> oh, all eaten. Oh, oh no! Oh no! There's, there's pieces of person all over your room. You guys, for some reason, Matt. I don't uh, know. I never saw it before. There's this disembodied Roman room is a dissected. Ah. So, so you guys aren't seeing this, of course. Listeners aren't seeing this, but uh, very often, as Max is making one of his uh, elegant points, he will place his hand on the fin of the shark on the cover of the Noman book. That's and true. It's just awesome <laughs> it's so true give me power shark give me the power i need to stop the fascists do you it's solemnly so- swear oh I do. yeah oh man i totally do it's uh, yeah yes yes oh yes i will yes yes it's it's so good oh, it is it's mm. funny because like it's so like I feel like this is one of these books that the 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 old Mark Twain adage of like you know classics are books that you want to have read mm-hmm. and like there's certain ways in which mm. the the other the other genre novels that this 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 experience is very true for me were the um Gene Wolfe's uh, uh Shadow and Claw yeah and, Book and of the, the New Sun Book of the New Sun yes thank you um yeah. we're like. I read all of them like in a row, kind of binged them, you know, I mean, like over over several weeks and hated the books while I was reading them, (laughs) but also couldn't put them down, was super intrigued and have had like a numerous conversations about them since. And it's one of these things where like I didn't hate Nomon to any degree Mm. while reading it, but like it's almost a book that for me at least is like more fun to talk about and like let like like let like like the past tense of it is Mm -hmm. You know, to, to, he even makes this point, right? Of like the man who can only see in the past, yeah. only see in his memories. And I feel like in a lot of ways, like reading the book was this like barrage of information and remembering and talking about the book. So remembering it like physically through sound mm-hmm. is, you know, like almost more fun and more enjoyable and like I'm getting more out of it. Well, certainly it's it's an extra exercise, right? It's you're sort right. of performing the same myth like exercise of teasing apart and importing 
a linear structure onto mm-hmm. the book. Mm-hmm. As another point he makes, you know, if we were machines, we could take it in in multiple orders very easily but we're not machines we're people right or we're a certain kind of machine and what we need is for it to be in a certain order that's how we make sense of it so so this is this is maybe spoilers for cloud atlas by david mitchell um which you know if you haven't read it you should skip 30 seconds or something but um you know i've reread that a whole bunch of times and one of the interesting things about it is it's these six stories that are kind of like split apart in a different way and one of the times that i've re i reread it i read the stories in chronological order instead oh, cool, of published yeah. order and it was a really interesting sort of like you know it's like taking his like split and chop narrative and kind of like you know, it's kind of almost feeling of like reader agency and narrative. It's like we talk a lot in video games about like player agency and how you tell stories in that kind of way. And so what I was wondering is, you know, I feel like this is the kind of book that gains a lot through reread. Mm-hmm. And I was also wondering, like, how would I split and chop it myself if I were rereading it? Like, would I be able to? It's like the David Mitchell book is this very clear kind of like stacked, you know, like recur, like one single simple recursive function that kind of like pops you up through the narrative and back down. Whereas this book, like, it's more of almost like a a swirl. And it feels like it would be a lot harder to just read like Constantine's parts and then just read, you know, uh, Bekele's parts or anything like that. Like it's really, you know, it's, it's not quite as simple as that. And all the parts bleed into each other. They don't just like mention each other. They actually bleed, Mm -hmm. you know, and they show up in each other's. And um, I don't know. I was kind of, I I was kind of curious, but like, how would I, like, I don't know if you have thoughts on this or if either of you do of like, how would, how would you best reread Like if you're trying to reread this book as like a textbook instead of, you know, just for the ideas as opposed to for a narrative, like how would you do that? So my answer to that is actually, I was going to say this anyway, unrelated to, you know, David Mitchell, but to me, the way that I think about this book is absolutely, you know, one way to think about it is in the context of a sort of choose your own adventure where you, Hmm. the reader, have the ability to organize the narrative in different Mm -hmm. ways. And you're sort of prompted (laughs) to think of it that way because of the way the narrative works. But I don't think it works the way a typical choose your own adventure book works. I think it's all the adventures are happening in the text at the same time. And what you do is you read it from start to finish and then you decide how you want to think about what the narrative was. Right, And that's the sense in which it's a choose-your-own-adventure. You can decide for yourself, oh, I think of this primarily as the story of this, you know, distributed entity from the far (laughs) ends of time who is traveling back, you know, to commit murders. Or you can think, oh, I think of this primarily as Miliki Neath's investigation of a couple of suspicious deaths. Or you can think, I mean, and and, and so like you actually don't, it it would be very difficult to do, to sort of arrange the narrative as a reader in any other way, I Mm -hmm. think. I think so. But you have so many options having read it from page (laughs) one to page end. Right. You have so many options for how you want to organize it in your own head. And I think maybe this is my point about almost enjoying it more after the fact and while reading it is it's like, I actually enjoy it more as like a three-dimensional gestalt than mm-hmm. I did as like a one-dimensional reading experience. Well, it's, yeah, it's like a choose your own adventure, but like the, the, the axis it operates on is, it, it's like, it's like rotated from the normal <laughs> choose your own adventure. <laughs> right. So that it's like orthogonal to time, <laughs> like a shark. Man. God, we're so pretentious. 
<laughs> but I totally, Welcome I totally to Spectology, agree. everyone. Yeah. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the reasons that I love this so much and that I'm not positive, I, I think that there are a lot of different experiences that you could take away from this book. One of the reasons I loved it so much is that um, I kept feeling like I was being my expectations of narrative were being fainted and played with. Mm -hmm. There's a thing that happens on the fencing strip where if you get people who actually kind of know what they're doing to some level, who sort of know what an attack is and what a pair mm -hmm. is and what a defense is, so then you start sort of, people can start faking each other out. They can fake each other out with distance and sort of body jerks. and sort Right, of, like juking in football or whatever. Right, too. yeah, yeah, exactly like that. Um, but you can also suggest to someone that you're going to make a certain kind of parry when they move forward. And in fact, what you're going to do is make the entirely separate parry. Right. You can suggest to someone that you're attacking and pressing them a bunch when in fact what you're doing is waiting for their counterattack, but you're trying to make them feel like they need to make that attack mm -hmm. to, to sort of press you back because otherwise you're just going to pick them up. And I, f so there's a, there's a lot of guessing or seeding where the other person thinks the narrative is going mm -hmm. to go. And I felt like I was being played with in this very elegant way throughout the book. Um, and it's down to little things like Mieliki, um, the inspector's first name, is a character from a, I think, partially extant Finnish um, mythological cycle mm -hmm. in which... Lonrot is another figure. Um, oh. Meliki specific, but I, and I kept spending so much time trying to figure out what that relationship meant in the context of the book. But Meliki is also a virgin hunter archetype, mm -hmm. like Diana, right? The hunter in the Roman pantheon. <laughs> That's so cool. I didn't know that. And That's so you've so cool. So you've got this structure of sort of Finnish mythological references that seem to be. Anna Bekele's sort of narrative with Coulson's Roman narrative, including the fire judges um, sort of sliding in over the top of this mm -hmm. in a sort of similar sense to the way that you've got the kind of Greek and Roman contrasts working throughout the rest of the book. So I kept, mm -hmm. there's, it's so rich in its reference and so rich in the connections it's drawing mm -hmm. that I kept trying to figure out which of those were important and chasing down different paths that gave me a whole different layer of book that was then kind of recompiling itself on me every time a new piece of data came down the line. Right. So having it whole in my head now, it's amazing to navigate, but I also mm -hmm. felt that kind of perspective guessing or anticipation. Right. You know, where are you going with this, you clever bastard? Like, mm -hmm. what's happening right. here? To be mm -hmm. integral to my enjoyment of the book. I wonder... I do wonder someone who hasn't hasn't read a lot of postmodern fiction or read a lot of science fiction or like read a lot of the kind of like genres that it's pulling apart and playing with like what they might get out of this book. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I can't put myself in that mindset. So. I think it does. Need I would a, hope, need a new connectome. Right. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> I would hope that it does a pretty good job of telling you what it's going to do and then doing it and then subverting what it's going to do. Mm -hmm. Um, in a way, 
I don't know if Memento is a terribly, the movie Memento mm-hmm. by Christopher Knoll is a terribly good comparison for this book, but that's similarly set up as a particular kind of very accessible noir detective story with strong procedural elements in its opening and with some weird structural facets. Right. Mm-hmm. And then by the end, the reader has not only pretty strong sense of how that story is supposed to go, but how the changes have been played on it. And I think that's something that Harkaway really gets from not just trusting the reader to navigate the way that David Mitchell does in Cloud Atlas, for mm-hmm. example, where the reader is a character, is trying to navigate and impose some sense, but is not a character who's literally present in the book in right. the way that Neith is present in the book. Whereas here we have a character that we identify with profoundly. I think Neith is a great example of a identifying kind of eyepiece character because she's so clearly herself she has her idiosyncrasies she has her tropes but she's also someone that the reader is very comfortable parking behind where the reader is very comfortable parking behind her shoulder and following her while every single other character has such a marked voice um maybe not such wild ventriloquism as um, as Mitchell's trying in Cloud Atlas, mm. for example. Mm. But Athenaeus's sections read very different from Constantine's sections. Definitely. Read very different from Bekele's sections. Read very different from Nomon's sections <laughs> <Yeah>. in particular. <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's actually that's a really interesting thing, and I, I want to dig into that if you yeah. don't mind. Please. So to me, that actually gets to one of the one of the few issues I would say that I had with this book which was something that that I was thinking about when I was reading parts of it. Um, it's really interesting to do the con- con- contrast, comparing contrast between the book as it exists in my mind now, having finished it, and the, you know, um, book under construction in my mind as I was reading yeah, it. Yeah. The, very different in this case. I do think that's a cool point. But okay, so David Mitchell versus Nick Harkaway. Fight. Cloud, Out- Cloud Atlas versus Nomon. Um, to me, they have almost inverse strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I agree with that. David Mitchell is a better ventriloquist, a lot better. I mean, David Mitchell is one of the like just top yeah. prose writers currently writing. I had a little bit of an issue with some of the ventriloquist attempts in this book. I there were there were definitely moments as I was reading it where I felt that the uh, the voice of the character I was currently in was not was 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 rough and choppy was not was not coming together for me. And Bekelet was one of those. Mm-hmm. Constantine I, for me was more, and I, I want to talk about that. Yeah. I want to sidetrack that, but but yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, Bekelet was the one that stuck out the most to me. Um, he did not really feel like a person so much as a pastiche. Um, he never quite gelled for me. There were sections in his parts that I, that I liked a lot more than others. I think the descriptions of his art were awesome. The description of his time in prison was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, his relationship with his son was pretty good, but I didn't get much in terms of his relationship with his granddaughter. I didn't get a whole lot in terms of his life, his actual sort of inhabiting his body and moving around in the world and eating and drinking and like compared to Neith or compared to uh, Constantinos or, or uh, um, he, you know, Constantinos to me felt is it Constantinos or Constantine? 
I don't remember. That was, let me let me look that up. Yeah, I thought it was Constantine. Yeah, I don't remember something. I think he introduces himself. Yeah, Constantine Karaikos. Uh, right, and I think he gets Karyakos. referred to a couple of times as Constantinos, either by Megalos or sort of by ah, other. Okay, all right. Dudes. So it's a sort of anglicized version of his yeah. name or whatever. All right. So 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 Constantine to me felt, um, you know, there were maybe other issues with him, but he felt more like a person. In some sense, there mm-hmm. were my, my issues with his sections were a little bit different. But basically, I think, you know, the broad point I want to make is I think that the ventriloquism was was weak when it could have. Like, there were several points at different parts of the narrative and different narratives where I felt it could be a lot stronger. You know, by contrast, Cloud Atlas is a book with incredibly strong ability to inhabit people and make them seem completely fully fleshed and real and also compelling moment to moment mm-hmm. that's another issue i had with some of the ventriloquism in in Noman is that i i, I think it, it it flagged a little in some of the sections where you weren't feeling like you were really inhabiting the people right. as a result of that and and maybe also unrelated you, you the narrative lost a little bit of its momentum and it tended for me to pick up whenever i was back into neath mm-hmm. because neath felt more real well i think one thing that um, which is you know, in the context <laughs> right. of you've I know, finished right? the whole book, right? Hilarious. Right. Yeah, absolutely. For, good, good one. For me, part <laughs> of this too was not just the not just the character element of the of of the ventriloquism, but particularly the genre element. Like one thing that David Mitchell does really well in Cloud Atlas is that oh, each yeah. story is a different genre oh, and yeah. has different not just like tropes in terms of plot tropes but also in terms of the way the language works for that story mm-hmm. fits the kind of story that it is yeah and i think in particular that's one thing that nick harkway barely does with Nomon. like yeah. all of the prose is kind of the same kind of prose and it's not that he's a bad prose writer by mm-hmm. by any means but he's also not necessarily trying to stylistically like change up each chapter like each chapter reads in a similar kind of straightforward sort of like like genre straightforward type of prose yes well i think they're all in the same genre and i think that's a mm-hmm. big difference between this and cloud atlas mm-hmm. cloud atlas is very specifically showing us different genres mm-hmm. and different characters through different genres and right. that's part of the reason that the voices can be so dramatically distinct yeah um whereas this is trying all of the characters are sort of in the same genre and i i think it gets almost fractal with the direction of the book from the perspective mm-hmm. of having finished it like yes these are all people who are enormously relevant to one another because all of their different universes and voices have been designed to do this one thing and support this one thing yeah so while comparatively i mean i've read cloud atlas once but you know when you get to the end of it for me i, I got to the end of it and i was like it's a little hard to find a, a single sort of identifying kind of through line or takeaway. Oh yeah. And there. this is exactly what, you know, so I've, I've, I've said what I think the, the strength of cloud assets is its weakness is, is something that Noman does incredibly well. Yeah. <laughs> the weakness of cloud Atlas is exactly the fact that it doesn't really cohere particularly. Um, not any, not in anything like the way that, and I love David Mitchell. I should say, I don't think cloud Atlas is David Mitchell's best book, No, but I think, um, it's like maybe it's most interesting from a from a formal yeah it's, it's a, yeah it's most formally interesting maybe but 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 it doesn't it doesn't have um it, you know it feels a lot like several different stories that have loose thematic or um, detail connections to each other and mm-hmm. that don't 
then that could easily have been different books or that could easily. And in other words, the very, you're very, um, right. And his final takeaway is something like, Oh, like souls, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it's, it's like it's, ripples it's through time. That's really weak, makes you, know. you think, right. Yeah, like it's okay. kind of like, okay, you karma, know. like in the, in the traditional Buddhist sense and not yeah. the Western sense of karma of like, Oh, what you do has effects on other people over time. Right. Yes. You know, and, and it's like, okay, then, I get it. Yeah. And then that like, that you know, hard. we should beautiful, probably, we should probably freedom. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, right. and, 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 you know, so, but, but, so to me, what, what I want to say is the weakness of the ventriloquism of Noman is not so much that he doesn't change genre. I mean, clearly that's, a, that's true, but the weakness is, is, is not, it's also not that the characters aren't different enough from each other. It's more that the character, some of the characters aren't detailed enough. They aren't dense yeah. enough. Mm-hmm. They don't I have gravity, that. enough gravity. They, they, they're a little light on their feet, so to speak. They, they sort that, of yeah. float a little. Mm-hmm. Um, Bekele in particular, there were a number of things about him that, you know, there's this idea that that I've always really liked when talking about narrative. Um, things don't have to be literally true when you're writing fiction. Or so I was told by a creative writing teacher that I had in high school. They don't have to be literally true. They just have to seem literally true. They mm-hmm. have to have verisimilitude, mm-hmm. not necessarily veritas. Um, so, you know, when you when you sort of when when I kind of think about a narrative that you know, but by its nature, not only is it fiction, but it's fiction in a universe that doesn't necessarily have the rules that our universe has. And so maybe we sort of can't or shouldn't judge it by exactly the standards we'd apply to nonfiction or to fiction that was hewing very closely to the rules of our universe. But does it feel like it makes sense? Does it feel true? Does it feel like it, um, like, a, does it feel like this is a real person making real decisions? And Bekele, I mean, he didn't, it's sort of a, a, I almost feel bad saying it, but he didn't feel like an Ethiopian in a lot of ways to me. I didn't mm-hmm. feel like I was reading the story of somebody who was an immigrant from another culture coming to Britain. It felt like the story of a an older man who lived in Britain. That's interesting because actually one of the problems I had with Beckley, like more so, was it actually didn't feel like an old man. Ah, yes. Like, like it, like the, there wasn't, wasn't kind of the enough. physicality of being an old man yes, or the yes, like mental workings of being an old man. Or, yeah, or no, I agree with that actually. And yeah. Especially like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm here in Boston. I just spent a lot of time with my grandfather who's like an older man mm-hmm. and, um, he thinks differently and like he moves in the world differently. And like, he's aware of that. He's very self-aware of that. Right. Like he's still, he's 90, but still has like, you know, he's very intelligent and sharp still, but he has memory problems and he's aware of his memory problems. He sometimes can't find the right word, but he's aware that he's not saying the word that he wants to be saying. And it's, you know, it's hard and like sad in certain ways, but it's also, you know, I don't, I don't get any, like, Beckley seems like just on top of his game, he's able to go back to painting without like his hands hurting. Mm-hmm. Right. There's <laughs> never that. that moment. And, and it's I don't sort get of like, a sense that yeah. he's, I don't get the sense that he's that old. I mean, the generations yeah. seem pretty close together. Right. Here, that might but, be true too. Yeah. yeah. But, but he's, but I, I see where you're coming from. Um, I wonder how much of that comes down to a comfort as the artist taking license with an experience that's very much not your own. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell just even from the author's note in the back that he really wanted to get, he really wanted not to be screwing up other people's experiences, right. Clearly. especially right. the experiences of, you know, being a political prisoner in <laughs> right. a totalitarian yeah. he, he seems to have right. personal connections to some real political prisoners. So he's... Tr- my sense of it was that he was trying to be 
to do the sections with Bekele as well as he felt he could. But then mm. there's a level of nervousness that I could naturally see coming out in that. I mean, this is very much reading into yeah. the like psyche of somebody who's trying to make mm-hmm. the performance of this book happen, right? right. Um, where, you know, it, it starts to feel almost borderline amoral to be speaking so authoritatively right. from somebody else's perspective versus like... I don't know, with, with Constantine, certainly, they, I, I think like the character ends up being inhabited very much. And even yeah. with Athenaeus, you know, there you have the distance of 2,000 years and a bunch of... Um, right. It's almost easier to acquire that kind of verisimilitude with somebody who's so obviously already different. It's already so different. Mm-hmm. But I think, right. to me, you know, I don't think he... I, I, I really appreciate the attempt. Yeah, I wanted to and say that, And I think it was too. a sensitive... Yeah. It Absolutely. Was a, it was a sensitive and a not, like, fundamentally flawed attempt. Right. It just didn't quite come together. Yeah, for right. Me. Yeah. For that. me, these criticisms are not like, yeah. oh, he shouldn't have attempted this. Or, but or no, like, no, no, they're right, very right. nitpicky criticisms of the particular. Yeah. Attempt. And I'm, I'm not. I'm not hearing either of you guys say that. It's just a phenomenon that I think about a lot. Totally. Um, it's, totally. it's a tricky line to walk, and I was really impressed that he chose to do it. And I was impressed to, you know, I mean, I've never been an Ethiopian political prisoner, but I was impressed that he managed to get as much of that on the page as he did in the context of what could very easily have been big damn science fiction novel about big damn science fiction ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that I think that I was so happy that Bekele was there and I was so yeah, happy yeah. that yeah. like... Even the kinds of conversations they were having about mm-hmm. photo light balancing right. and right. about really art cool. and video that games and yeah. color, like all that kind of stuff was so important. And I think could very, if it's stuff that I think somebody who wasn't pushing might have not even thought to include and i think it's an yeah. important aspect to the i book. think it's much better having it than it would have been if it didn't have no, it totally much better much I, better one thing that was and i i, I do want to go down this rabbit hole just really quickly at this point is sure. is like one of the problems i had with constantine in particular was like the character of constantine as this like uber rich banker you know i mean he's talking constantly talking about his balls like i i mean like he's 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 guys i know like i know those dudes in finance and like he he felt very like in line with those dudes i know in finance and yet in particular his whole like anti-fascism statement and like hit like caring about that felt like weirdly out of character for that like hyper masculine like you know like make all the money type like okay so sure he's like sensitive about certain things but it did feel like and this is this is one of the few things that like pulled me out like i kept Mm. questioning like would he really care that much or would it just be like another way for him to make money right like like he seemed so amoral on all these different standards but then like it felt like at times like Harkaway talking about his own kind of like feelings about fascism instead of like Constantine doing it. And, and that in those Constantine chapters were some of the points where I most felt like I was reading a novel. Like I would most get kind of pulled out mm-hmm. and be like, Oh, I'm, I'm re- reading an author writing about a thing that they feel. And I actually felt the same way. Like I really loved the stuff of 
Beckley's chapters talking about the the photography and film and like what his daughter was doing but the fact that he got it so quickly mm-hmm. and like like you know it sounded like like he sounded like someone our generation talking about race not someone three generations ago talking about race even even a black man even a black man immigrant right like I've had some of those conversations that they, they, yeah. they take just different language. Like we use different language now to describe sure. this stuff and we're comfortable with it in a certain way. And I did feel at times just this feeling of like, and this almost goes back to the genre thing of like, it's, it's kind of a similar piece of the genre thing of everyone spoke in kind of a similar type of language, no matter when or where they were from. And it's one that they always felt comfortable. And like, I didn't mind it totally, but I almost kind of, like it was the one thing that could pull me out of the narrative was this feeling of like, you know, would Constantine really be like against fascism from a moral stance as opposed to like finding it just like maybe ugly or just not giving a shit. Like I felt mm-hmm. like, like I felt reading it. I felt like he, sh- he shouldn't give as much of a shit as he does. That's, that's so interesting. You say that I didn't have that problem reading him at all. I had a different problem. I, I, I did find that very believable because I feel like I know some of those guys and they do care about moral issues in that way. And that's like it was I, that actually made a lot of sense to me in hmm. particular, his, hmm. pr- his particular political views and the way that they had this weird tension with the way he lived his life. Right. Felt very right. Real to me. And I feel um, I feel like there's also a sort of specific like. There's the specifically Greek context of mm-hmm, sort of fascist right. resistance. Fascism is very real in, right. in the country. <laughs> right. And also for me, anchoring it in his relationship right. to his former girlfriend's advisor, yeah, father. Yeah, yeah. So his right. girlfriend's father, Nicole. his former advisor's. Is it, I thought I thought he was her uncle. Maybe I don't oh, know. Maybe oh, I yeah. That. No, I think you're right. The right, guy, her right, uncle. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. And it's it's his advisor's husband, right? Like the advisor is so. now mm-hmm, dead. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's yeah. right. Right. So. Um, but anyway, sort of anchoring it into the specific relationship with a specific yeah. older relative who's been right. sort of right. fascist. And that part he's, he's become more fascist. Right. Yeah, he just wants to punch exposure. him in the face. And then finally right. he does. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's great. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> and it's like applauded for <laughs> and, uh, and that for me, um, I think kind of sold me on his political beliefs and his political re- his resistance to fascism politically being almost yeah. like a personal thing as right. opposed to right. like it's a moral a, stance it, in addition to the general like fascism is ugly fascism is right. gross right like fascism specifically fucked over this guy who i respected and used to really like right. and now yeah. i can't have a single conversation with him without he him. just and drives me freaking there, nuts there yeah. is the element too of like you know fascism of this particular type is also mm. like anti-globalism and globalism is what makes me money right, right and yeah. this kind of this kind of like localism globalism yeah, yeah. but it's also push, like people i mean i think i know so many people for and probably me as well for whom you know our moral beliefs don't always jive with the way that we live our lives i mean yeah, people I mean, are full yeah. of these kind of this exact kind of contradiction where right. you have these, you theoretically have this commitment to an ideal or whatever sure, sure. and you really was, believe in it. But. I, and, but that's, that's not the, like uh, that, that didn't bother me at all. What particularly bothered me was it felt again, just like the, the, the types of Constantines that I know their take on fascism would be less like, Oh, look at how ugly it is. And more like, Oh, can I make money from it or not? And historically it was fascist. And the answer has been yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right, exactly. Right, right. <laughs> and so, so that, that was the yeah, one piece that yeah. felt like, it was really interesting because I yeah. had a different issue with some of the Constantine stuff, and that was the way that wealth, extreme wealth, was handled. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
In contrast to the Milikinith parts where she interacts with these powerful government bureaucrats and she sort of gets chances to see behind the curtain and like see how things really work and all these types mm-hmm. of stuff. And there's some great moments where Neith is meeting the fire judges and and she's just like these people in a room and yeah. there there's no one in charge <laughs> yeah. and they're just that's I highlighted that worked some of those so well. It worked definitely. so so well. But in contrast, all the stuff with these really rich people was just weirdly vague and mythologized in a way mm-hmm. that wasn't really helpful and didn't really Especially like the fifteen, like they had names for the themselves. That, like that doesn't. I know that didn't work yeah. for me. It is true that unless really, it's kind of trying to be genre, like it, yeah. like there was a certain heightened Maybe. reality sense of it. Right, but yeah, definitely sort of like, but but it it just it didn't it wasn't it was a little uncanny valley, a little bit too much between being a realistic yeah. trying to be seem like it was a mm-hmm. realistic realistic yeah. depiction of the world and being magical realism. It just didn't quite slot into either one in a way that made sense to me. It, it and and it was not it was not a fable about rich people that made sense either because mm-hmm. of course it is true that people that are very wealthy have enormous power obviously mm-hmm. and that power can manifest itself in various you know sort of obscure ways that are hard for pe- that people don't notice or right. that people aren't aware of whatever but the idea that there's a number you can call I mean that's that seems sort of like I mean, like overly facile yeah. in a way yeah. that doesn't fit with the rest of the book's right. take on power. It's I also I, I, I see where you're coming from there. On the flip side, I recently was uh, informed that there is such a thing as private jet Uber. Yeah, that is true. So there is. Like, that is true. Yep. Two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, and yeah. you get X number of trips, and they show you right. know. So and on the app. one hand, there is an app. Yeah, yeah, there's an app for that. So on the one hand. Yes, absolutely. I, I like. I see where you're coming from with that. On the other hand, I mean, the it's a yeah, weird. but it's just, so another example of the same problem is like right. there's the scene where he's playing Go. He's like learning about Go from yeah. that rich guy. Yeah, did not work for me at all. No. That whole scene, mm-hmm. that whole scene fell flat mm-hmm. for me, and I was really disappointed in that scene in particular because um, Go is like. A cool thing to talk about in mm-hmm. relation to narrative you know i really like go go is fun and also an interesting lens through which to examine things um in stories um and so but I mean, it's and there's a lot of good um you can follow it along to discussions about power and yeah you can you can use it to discuss all these different things and the word myoshu which he uses all you know throughout the book it's like a cool word and yeah. it's like a cool idea but um that particular scene um it was like it was like two cardboard cutouts sort of bumping into each other <laughs> over a go board. There was no there was no depth to it. There was no reality to it. It felt like a weird dream. I definitely when reading that scene was like Matt's not going to like this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think there is a certain level of kind of dreaminess to a lot of Constantine's yeah that's really good yeah of yeah. his sort of crazy dissipated lifestyle it just doesn't right. the, the real problem is not so much what it was like but how it compared to the other narratives in this book it just compared mm. very unfavorably unfavorably to me with all the Neath narratives for example which were mm. so much better at dealing with some of the same questions I thought mm-hmm. I mean when Neath encounters powerful people behind the curtain I was riveted. I, I just mm-hmm. was, ever, was mm-hmm. hanging on every word. I was like, oh, my God, that's hilarious. Oh, my God, that's funny. Because it felt like it felt like all the little details were right. All the glances, all the expressions, all the hands on the table or under the table, 
all the names, all the personalities, it sort of all fit together in a way that made sense. Whereas, you know, with this other scene, it's barely even described. I mean, most of the description is given over to trying to lay out how Go works or or sort of provide some metaphors for Go. And I, I didn't find those particularly compelling either. I mean, there are better ways to describe Go, frankly. And like, you could have also chosen to not describe it and maybe only say one sentence about it instead of saying, you know, a couple pages about it. Whatever. There's different. I think there are a lot of different options that would have worked better for the go thing. And mm. then this other guy who he's talking to who never appears anywhere else in the narrative mm-hmm. is just who a may or may not be like I, I wondered whether that was supposed to be Lone Rod actually in the first time. First time I was reading. That's a cool it. idea. I didn't even yeah. think of that. But mm. but but it's there's not enough there. Mm-hmm. It, it's just like a it, it felt like a throwaway right. thing. Um Constantine's first chapter was definitely that's also the first chapter we get that is to to us as the reader when we're reading it for the first time the first of these like wait what the fuck is this right yeah Yeah. right it's the first chapter we get that's like not in this future world being told about this story and she kind of gets hit in the head and then we're like here and it's like wait right what is this what's going on here and uh, i wonder if i'm like because a lot of this stuff that we're talking about is from that chapter, that particular Constantine right. chapter mm-hmm. as well. And so I wonder if some of this is almost like a bit of a stylized trying to like it feels dream statey. It's trying to make you be like, like feel a little bit like the boat's rocking. Right. And it just also but but like maybe doesn't quite work quite as well towards that. Yeah, I mean, this is the part where I may even be entirely too generous um, because you're not only dealing with Constantine trying to tell this particular story, right. you're dealing with Anna's fictionalized representation right, right. of Constantine trying to tell exactly. this particular yeah. story. Right. And you get you have all uh-huh. of those layers of fictionalization before you have Nick Harkaway, comma, a human who presumably <laughs> right, exists right, in reality right. that is coextensive with our own. And it's a little bit like you as the reader yelling enhance at the book right. and expecting <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and expecting that the you know you won't lose any fidelity. Or, or yeah, or, or you know, or or that beat where um where where uh, oh god, in the movie Enemy of the State with Will Smith, you'll remember oh, there's a beat where like we Hilarious. have a security camera angle on will smith or somebody in a in a dressing room and one of the fbi people wants to rotate the image oh, and yeah, then yeah, successfully yeah. rotates that. the image of the security <laughs> camera so around funny. to the other side uh. it's great um but yeah and, and like i am so willing to go with the david lynchiness of it where i'm mm, like yeah mm-hmm. but i mean but it is a dream but it, of course <laughs> right. all these characters yes these characters yeah. all do and there's also a kind of, uh, you know, Nick Harkway, comma, you mad genius aspect to this, because on a certain level, the book has a perfect answer for why do these right. four characters from four it different does time zones lose fidelity yeah. when you zoom in sort of yeah. same right. like, why, why can I see the seams here? Why does this sentence mm-hmm. in Constantine's section sound like an Athenaeus sentence? You think right. my book is bad? Well, it's supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 yeah, I mean, like uh, you know, not bad, but certainly like right, not when, bad at all. When the right. seams are visible, there's this open question of like because of the seams are in, book, right? right? Like right. of whether the seam is supposed to be visible. Is this did did we did we laser fray these jeans or are the <laughs> jeans worn? Like what's going right. on here? And this is the point where I'm probably 
I, I engage in a little bit too much, like giving the author full reign to be a genius <laughs> so long as the book has a plausible excuse or justification for why it pulls together the way it right. does. And there's yeah, a real yeah. kind of open question mark for me um, with all books, like why, what characteristics of a book will make me give it this kind of reign versus what will just pull me out like there are any number right. of fantasy novels where by you know second chapter and a merchant has showed up from a faraway land and i'm like you're done I'm, <laughs> i am out this you have <laughs> yeah you're like i think i think that like i i know my partner read this book and she she recommended the gone away world to me years ago that's mm-hmm. how i know nick harkway in the first place and she actually didn't particularly like this book of his mm-hmm. um and I know for her, or I, I think for her, I haven't spoken to her since I've actually finished it. Like a lot of it was these kinds of issues. Yeah. And I often feel this kind of like, I feel both. Like I, I both am like, I agree intellectually that there's this like element of like the book is trying to show you the scenes to degree. And also at an emotional level, I sometimes almost like, uh, I wish you didn't, yeah, you know, yeah, it's like enough, I can definitely, enough. I can definitely feel both of these sides. And, and like for the, those, those readers who like, do this and are kind of like ah that just didn't work like i'm sympathetic to that even though i you know i personally really enjoyed the book and yeah. everything but i think that that's a sympathetic view so for another me. Sure. another book that actually uh i was thinking about with regard to this is another david mitchell book it's number nine dream you guys remember mm, which yeah, I have read that one that is um the reason I was thinking about that book with regard to this book is that that is no, i read ghost written not number nine dream sorry oh, ghost written is is also yeah really good um, actually ghost written. Yeah. That's another good one. Actually. That's mm-hmm. a, that's a really good comparison to make. Um, cause it's another multiple narratives intersecting right. multiple different, you know, as is like, sorry, really briefly bone clocks also is mm-hmm. his most recent. Mm-hmm. And I actually, in a lot of ways felt that bone clocks was more successful at doing the like tying together these multiple narratives and multiple short stories into like one narrative that actually tells like a long form narrative that really works than cloud Atlas was. Mm-hmm. And, and if, yeah. if, if cloud Atlas, particularly if that didn't part didn't work for you, but the rest did, I think bone clocks is really worth picking up and, and bone going clocks, through. Bone, I had a really good time with that. Um, it's, it's, it's fascinating as, I guess this isn't the Bone Clocks podcast, but, right. but no. nevertheless, I mean, it's, yeah. well, it's been a bunch of it's different, been a bunch podcasts. different podcasts. <laughs> All right. I mean, Bone yeah. Clocks is fascinating. We haven't from... even gotten to the Chrono Trigger podcast oh, yet. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> no. I mean, silly. Yeah. Chrono Trigger is very relevant for this book. It, it really actually you gotta is. Fight, you got to fight Lavos is the shark or something. <laughs> yes. 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 Magus is Lone Rot. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, absolutely. Right down to <laughs> character that you've encountered in some other context. Your, turns right, out your to be... POV character never speaks. Right. <laughs> Um, You know, with Bone Clocks, you get the fascinating, um, real sort of genius beat for me, which is Mitchell's ability to create a fantasy spine for this narrative and yet make you feel just so furious whenever the fantasy spine shows up. At least that was my experience of reading Mm. the book. I just like I really wanted this young woman to finish running away and get to pick the 
fucking strawberries. And then all of a sudden, these goddamn magic people started showing up and oh my God. putting up everything, Amazing. right? And like, but you then know, the this second to last chapter where that's the like core of the actual chapter, like it yeah. pulls it to, for me at least, it like it really pulled it together. It, it even it really like does. pulled together other novels of his. <laughs> yes. You know? yes, yes, the, the, the Jacob Dezoe references right. and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, there was a beat of like, if you were really a fantasy novelist, comma, David Mitchell, some of these words would be less silly. <laughs> mm, that's um, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Just, just in, in that, like, you know, you get to a point where everything's throwing, people are throwing like psycho balls at psycho walls and everything has a psycho prefix. And a little you, Star Trek y. Yeah, just, it's just a little, a little, but it, all of the narrative threads come together right. really well and you see what's going on and yeah. it's it, it works really well in that respect. But um, I don't know. It's just yeah. So, I kind so, of enjoyed that element. Fair yeah. enough. Like, <laughs> I think there's a, the flip of this of like yeah, true. <laughs> I, yeah, and then like at a certain point, you just at the end of Bone Clocks, right. you really want to see somebody throw a fireball at something. Right. Well, like the, and they the, do. The, yeah. it's like great. those seems showing actually worked for me. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. Yeah, run with that. Run with that a little bit. But just kind that. of like the emotional element. I don't know. It's been it's been two years since mm. I've read the book or something. But I just Whatever. remember getting to that last chapter and it being like. You know, we've had this like slow, meditative, you know, like magical realist at most book so far with like kind of like these weird little elements. And then it just goes so over the top, (laughs) like gonzo fantasy at the end. Welcome to fantasy town. Here's the magic system. And then goes like really hard sci-fi for the last Uh, one. It was just just like, like, oh, like you really like (laughs) fucked with me there in a way that I kind of appreciate. Like it bounced me all all around. And I I, I, I enjoyed that part. I can see that. Also, though, totally understand that not working for people. Again, like my girlfriend, it did not work for her. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I also think there's a, um, there's a sort of, thing that I, I try to watch myself on a lot, but there's a sort of genre author tendency to be reflexively a bit territorial. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. not, Reader too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like I often poorly, you get two sides of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting to be talking about this in the context of Noman as a sort of very science fictional book that is very much published as a literary novel. Yep. It's like, it's got Knopf on the spine. It has a very tasteful picture of a shark fin in the right. American edition and some fours on it to clue you in that there might be references to math in the book. But, you know, there's <laughs> no like, I don't know, attempt to reference a multi-bodied artificial, <laughs> like alien right. intelligence, not alien. No one's not neither alien starships nor alien. dragons. There are neither Grace starships discovered. nor dragons. There's barely there's a there's a tasteful iconic suggestion of a shark. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, you have a lot of literary authors using for either postmodern or metafictional reasons or just because we can do that now, mm-hmm. um, science fictional and fantastical tropes. And you get the New York Times writing like, oh, my gosh. Cormac- Station Eleven, I think, is the, is yeah. the go to example of. The, or, or Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Yeah, right. You know? exactly. like, McCarthy. You know, yeah, right. I'm not going to hurt Cormac McCarthy in any <laughs> circumstance, but there was a, there was a sort of there was a sort of breathlessness to the reception in the literary press of Oh my God, Cormac McCarthy has written something about civilization after the fall of civilization, and no one has 
ever done that right. before, you know? Right. It, it it's causes, like now we've been doing yeah. it since the 40s. Yeah, it's kind of an enormous collective viral. Yeah. <laughs> like, and and yeah. similarly, though, like the, the sort of tendency or temptation, certainly for very real um, uh, economic and external conditions reasons to play into that narrative if mm -hmm. the press, for whatever reason, decides to paint it on you. Um, so, so there's that that happens. And then on the flip side, you get people who are making, who are legitimately using genre tropes in directions that genre writers and readers have not used mm -hmm. them in to do cool new stuff i think colson whitehead does this a bunch oh yes yeah. oh, um, yes and you know wallace is another great example of it i mean i don't think that you could possibly critique that for um for for uh, being like the wrong kind of science fiction right exactly like no no, no it's, it's, yeah i mean it's funny think, that infinite just doesn't get called a science fiction no, novel true. When it, is. it clearly is but it, you you see a, this a lot in uh in authors of color and people who mm -hmm, are writing from mm -hmm. perspectives that are traditionally ignored by the establishment whether it's the genre establishment or the lit genre establishment right i mean i think you know mm -hmm. octavia butler is somebody who um I have seen her novels in lots of different sections of a bookstore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes sense to me because they are a lot of different things at the same right. time. Right. I think like they could work as. And this is something Nanetti talks about a lot. Mm -hmm. Nanetti Okorafor as well of like, <clears throat> you know, it's like her novels are all of these different things yeah, they are yeah. not american science fiction you right. know it's like okay well that's maybe one of the things that they are but like that doesn't actually contain them yeah yeah and so, there's a good um line that i've heard on magical realism and i really wish that i could remember who i heard it from initially which is just that when you are writing from a subaltern or or, or colonized perspective you know, the world does not look orthogonal. It doesn't look mm -hmm. um, the way that it looks from the perspective of what we'll collectively refer to as air quotes literary fiction. Um, it looks magical realist. It mm -hmm. looks, reality looks slipped when you've been invaded, when you've been taken over, mm -hmm. or when your government has been sort of arbitrarily overthrown by somebody else who lives somewhere else for their own <laughs> arbitrary reasons um, a lot of americans are dealing with this for the first time ever yeah, well i mean fucking I, us up pretty bad yeah you know and there's that feeling of i mean the magical realist perspective is maybe a little more accessible right now mm -hmm. this feeling of like oh shit you know my my reality slipped disc somewhere or mm -hmm. we're in a different groove what's happening one of the reasons that i think it's very interesting for Noman to have come out now and have been written in like I think 2014 through 2016 right like it was I think, I think it was even like 2010 through 2016 yeah it was yeah. like over a fairly long span of right. time so like so being written and composed and having reached its final form you know pre-Brexit pre-November mm -hmm. 2016 like pre everything that's come out since then right well and then he does reference some I mean it comes out you know the book comes out in 2017 right. and so it's like just enough of that kind of filters through that yeah. you can tell that he's he was thinking about these things beforehand and then they kind of like broke loose on the world right as he like puts right. his novel out yeah it's wild how um writers artists of all kinds but especially writers who are working on a very long time frame can mm -hmm. be kind of tap roots deep mm -hmm. down. You can have books that are not attempting to prophecy, but end up being so much about the moment where they come out. 
because they were being written in response to or in, with a kind of ear to the ground of the mm-hmm. sort of coming stampede. I think a lot of people, and this is not a book, but I think like the, the, um, the movie Logan struck a lot of people in that same way. You know, it came out in what, December of 2016 and it seemed like a movie that could not possibly have been made before late November. <laughs> like why on earth would you write this movie? Why would you shoot this movie this way? Why would you tell this story? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it arrives exactly on time. Mm-hmm. And certainly for me, the feeling of it was mm-hmm. like of very much of being seen unexpectedly by mm-hmm. someone three years ago. Like what were you paying attention to that you saw this coming? Yeah. I mean, to me, that's like a really good reminder that we, um, that when you live on a longer time scale, um, you will seem to come out of another dimension when, yeah. you, <laughs> when you say something or when you write something for people who are living on a different time from the short time scale, mm-hmm. when you don't live on Twitter and you suddenly look at Twitter, mm-hmm. it's like, going to another place i mean it's Mm. you are going to it's like it's like it's it's like seeing another version of the world you live in yeah Mm -hmm. because it's all sort of happening at the same time as stuff that you're doing you know your life is happening at the same time as people who are living on twitter's lives Mm -hmm. but different things are happening in those two (laughs) worlds even though they're you know coterminous it's it's a it's a sense of this might get to very weird space. I'm going to warn you all in advance. But um, that's there, not okay. You have to stop talking. All right. Okay. I was going to say, I'm I done. think it's too late for I'm that done. warning. So, so, uh, <laughs> it should be the content warning at the top. <laughs> this is CW weirdness. Um, so there is a, a Twitter user whose handle is some version of fuck theory who yeah, yeah, I yeah, him. think is pretty great. Um, it's, it's sort of philosopher, among many other things. And he wrote a brief Twitter thread a week or two ago as we're recording this about Freud and about desire and about how um, Freud, I'm going to get this a little wrong, for which I apologize in advance, sees a sort of desire principle, like things that we want in contrast and sort of bounded by and in conversation with a reality principle, like things that are sort of acceptable or things that can be had in reality. So mm-hmm. the desire principle has all sorts of what we might describe as, you know, perversions as, as things that it wants. And then the reality principle gives us the ways that we can try to um, act on those desires that will not destroy our physical reality, the people that we love, the people that we're operating around, you know, this mm-hmm. and, um, you get people whose reality principles are a little bit slipped um, or a lot slipped and then horrible things can happen or things that are way outside the bounds of morality. Um, and I, I wonder about this a lot. It's This started me wondering very specifically about the internet and about the extent to which we can create sort of sub-realities that are lexical mm-hmm. that have different reality principles binding them. I think like 4chan or Twitter or really any kind of identifiable media platform evolves its own reality principles, sort of what's 
allowed, what's expected, what does it mean to be operating in them? And those reality principles can be wildly out of sync with the way the world looks from the perspective of somebody who's never set foot on mm-hmm. Twitter. I, like, I wonder what it's been like over the last, you know, this, this speaks to sort of the ways that the internet modifies sexuality and messes with a bunch of other things, but it's also a lot more, uh, um, subtle and pervasive than that. Like, I really wonder what somebody who's not been on Twitter for the last two years thinks about the fact that we talk about dogs totally different now than we talked about dogs three years ago. Well, the funny thing is, so I, I mean, I've like how, how, in what way? I just, I just never heard somebody use the logism pupper before (laughs) dog rates happened. Right. Yeah. And now 14 out of 10. Yeah. And now that's enormously common. And yeah, um, it's enormously common. <laughs> I'm making faces. <laughs> so I'm also a cat person. I, I think, <laughs> I think. And, 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 you know, it, it's sort of, it becomes yeah. kind of pervasive. And this is maybe like my sort of friend group pervasive. I don't know how universal yeah, yeah, it I is. Gonna, that's what I was going to say. Different places. But, I, uh, but I also think, I mean, Actually, this stuff oh. bleeds into other worlds. I mean, I've spent yeah. very little time on Twitter in the last mm-hmm. two years. But because I know you. You know, I also talk like you. Right. No, I mean, it's it's a it's the the Twitter bleeds into you. They do. Mm -hmm. They bleed into things, and I'm sure that I'm trying to bleed myself out of Twitter. (laughs) You're you're dripping blood everywhere. Sorry, and this is such silver blood. Yes, we're we're in uh, Matt's apartment right now, and it's very well appointed, (laughs) even though my Twitter blood is now everywhere. There was already a thin layer of different blood all Uh, over everything. Shark blood. Shark blood. Oh my God! There's this Roman centurion (laughs) all over the place again. I couldn't see him for a while. I feel like I'm in five pieces. It is. It is interesting that like Harkaway is on Twitter a fair Mm -hmm. amount. Um, and, and to having this Twitter conversation in the context of, of Nomon and like to what degree, you know, obviously it doesn't happen in tweet sized bites, but this idea that like Twitter, like the Twitter feed is just all this like shit happening simultaneously. Yes. And almost like, you know, if he did, he, he, it might not be presented in tweet sized bites, but he sounds like it almost wrote it that way. He wrote like short chunks, mm-hmm. like you were saying, kind of like interspersed with each other. And I almost wondered the degree to which the novel is like. Like, I wonder if people on Twitter have an easier time reading this novel than people not on Twitter. Uh, that's an interesting question. There are certainly it's like references. the simultaneously yeah. simultaneousness yeah. of the narrative. Yeah. I mean, honestly, to me, one of the points that this book makes or I mean, you know, I uh, it's kind of rich for me to say this. Of course, this is just my prior. So whatever. I mean, <laughs> But like, it seems like the book this agrees confirms with me. my prior. Yeah. <laughs> It seems like this book really agrees with something I've always believed about which everyone else is wrong. Uh, even, even the language, even the language confirms my priors. It's like a very yeah. Twitter thing. One of the things it makes me think is that um, it's really important for us to um, exist simultaneously. If we choose to be within something, we must also, I think, for our health, try to exist simultaneously without it as well um, and try to not be completely completely mm-hmm. um mm. caught up in the one thing um right. it is healthy to it can be healthy to have a um powerful constant relationship with a piece of technology um but it is uh you know it is primarily healthy when you also have other relationships i mean it's sort mm-hmm. of like if you 
put all of your relationship eggs in one basket, you're going to have uh, problems potentially. I I think this is maybe something that happened during, like, I feel like this is a thing that I remember a lot more from college or maybe, maybe it was 10 years ago. Maybe it was like being in college, maybe it was being younger. I don't know, but kind of like, like you'd have those friends that would get really into some sort of like internet subculture and then Mm. just like bring it entirely into, into real life, you know, Mm -hmm. like Mm. speaking in memes more or less, but like in real life and, and just how like, you know, obnoxious that could be, even if you two were also like, you knew, knew, like I would know that subculture sometime be like, but like the other people around us don't. So like read the room. (laughs) And I think that's kind of what you're saying. It's like, it's okay to have those meme communities that you Mm -hmm. meme in, but you also have to be able to think like Mm -hmm. in, in IRL English as well. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But you're like, it's good to be like treated as like multiple different languages as opposed to just like trying to, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and this is a point I've heard various sort of people who think about media a lot make. But you know, when we consume information, we it is you know is probably to our good if we think about the way we consume information, at least in some sense, analogously to the way we think about how we consume you know food mm-hmm. or sustenance, other types of sustenance. Mm-hmm. I mean, we you don't want to you know necessarily not consume things, but there are different diets that are available to you and you can maybe spare some thought about you know what your diet is and not just your diet in terms of like which twitter feeds do you follow but your diet in terms of how much time do you spend following twitter feeds versus reading books you know i mm. think about the generational component to this a lot mm-hmm. that uh, it's fascinating reading gen x authors writing about television um the one oh, that's, yeah the, the essay that's really jumping out at me right now is David Foster Wallace's yeah, Eunice yeah, exactly. Pluribus. I was just thinking that. Right? Just right. thinking about that. And yeah. we're just all of infinite jest to get yeah, back yeah, to that absolutely. again. Absolutely, of course. Yes. It's like any interview where he talks about TV. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it's a Charlie Rose interview where he talks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, 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 but it's not just him. <laughs> yeah, two like very heard... problematic people. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. yep. That's important to know. Yeah, I, I just wanted to throw that and out. And in particular, really in particular, the way in which they are problematic is their treatment of women. <laughs> yes. Just to say. <laughs> really <laughs> very clear women. very clear Oy. oh man so but it's not just him having this conversation right the, this sort of notion that television is so all-consuming and such an addictive force that you would always have the tv on in the background that you would watch four hours of television a day that you and certainly that's the angle on television that say my parents who are older than gen x i mean they're they're sort of the round of kids before like 10 years before had about tv it was never present in our household because the impression was that it would be all-consuming and addictive if it were present and i think about the way that people about my age which is 34 respond to social media there's this we you know it came up with us facebook came to my college before it came to many countries mm-hmm. um and or to adults yeah certainly to adults like i remember the moment when i started getting facebook <laughs> requests several years after i yeah made a facebook account so i could see the party pictures that friends posted of mm-hmm. me um and getting your like aunt friending you. Yeah. Like, and then oh. here comes my aunt, right? Wow. 
so and now she's the only one left on facebook yes that's right that's right bye <laughs> facebook <laughs> yeah no exactly everybody i know is um even if they have to be on there for work is either systematically low-keying their facebook presence or straight up deleting it mm-hmm. um but that addictive possibility existed for us because we didn't grow up with it and didn't know what place it should have in our diet. It's just like, yeah. this is a neat, cool thing, which is yeah. ours. And I suspect, and I've seen from people who are younger, one of the great things about working in SF is that I like continue meeting younger writers. People who are just entering the, the con youngs. scene a little yeah. bit more and getting a sense of what their use habits are. And, you know, there are some things that they have that ridic- addictive use of, towards which i don't even know about these days Mm -hmm. but their use patterns for something like twitter or facebook are a lot more balanced you know Mm -hmm. you get the um it's a great piece of reporting a couple months ago that was i think on wired about teenagers using instagram who have the like hyper curated instagram feed that we think about that we sort of instinctively represent as sort of what a social media picture of you looks mm-hmm. like and then you write endless think pieces about how oh that's um, bad or yeah over curated yeah. you know this that or the other thing and then apparently one of the rounds of teenager response to this is to have their official Instagram feed that's like all of the very well put together pics right. and then an inverted Instagram feed which is pics of like specifically looking kind of gross or not put together or from the wrong <laughs> selfie angle that. or like all of the girls in the like hyper glammed up prom shoot making just weird faces <laughs> at the camera and like sticking their stomachs out and it's it reading this made me feel very happy because mm. I think that my round of folks are very susceptible to all of the slot machine tricks mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in this particular sort of media. And that's mm-hmm. going to be the thing mm-hmm. that's going to be a monkey on our back for that's going to be our undoing. Yeah. And the kids are not going to deal with that. They're going to deal with whatever nine things come after that. Yeah. Right. right. Well, it, one, one interesting piece of this though, is like, you know, our, our grandparents and parents and us had TV. Yeah. Like maybe our parents, but mostly us had Facebook and Twitter. And then like kids are going to have TV, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, fucking yak. Like I I don't even know what these things are half the time. And it's like, you know, how much more quickly do these slot machines come at them? Like, you know, do do you, can you build actually like meta defenses against them or is it going to try to build a like new defense to each specific one? I mean, I think you, I think you can. And I think one of the ways you do it is exactly what you just said. You go meta, right? You get abstract. This is Mm -hmm. the, this is the very powerful tool um, that is deployed a lot in the book Nomon, which we are ostensibly talking about. We're still, <laughs> we're always, Nomon has insinuated itself into our psyches, so we're always talking about Nomon, whatever you're talking about. Nomon is wearing all of us like a hat. <laughs> we are a turducken. All of us are a turducken. Um, I also wonder to what degree we sound like a bunch of olds. Like, if, like any teenager listening to us is like, that's not what social media is. Yeah, it's entirely well, good, possible. Good, good, good. Look, I am, I am what I am at a certain point. Right. I mean, you know, but so, so I think what you, one of the things you can do to handle complexity is you can get meta, you can get abstract, you can create another level of abstraction. Mm. Um, this is a a very powerful technique. Um, I think it is very effective too. Um, there are other techniques too. I mean, I'm basically, I, 
I don't worry. You could create a level that is orthogonal to all of the other uh, levels, yeah. and then yeah. operate right. upon that level. Right. To yeah, unify. That would be pretty sweet. Yeah. In like you know, in a Zelda, you know, type <laughs> game. Anyway, um, <laughs> create a time traveling super mind. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Ooh. Yes. I love the idea that. So we, you're playing Chrono Trigger now. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh man, so good. Um. Uh, what was I even gonna say? I know. No, I don't sorry, remember. I was just interrupting you left and right. <laughs> this is totally fine. I just can't remember. We're talking holiday. Some, yeah, just meta, meta, meta. Yeah, meta yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting abstract. Yeah. Getting abstract. Um. Uh. 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 So just, I'm not just worried. That soundscape of us yelling meta and getting abstract. <laughs> it's like it's just the remix fodder for right. all of you out there in the podcast yeah. fan for community. this episode the b-side is the a-side <laughs> and the a-side is orthogonal to itself <laughs> okay go, go ahead Matt. i'm not so much worried about you know hu- humanity not having like you know each generation is gonna have to fight its own battles you know no matter how worried we are or not worried i i think that they will develop new weapons but i think definitely from our sort of perspective you know, I definitely, I, I personally, I want to look at young people and, and see how they're doing, use, how they're making their diets. And I also want to look at older people and see how they're managing their diets. Sure. My father has a very effective method for handling social media. He never uses it at all. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Dad, dad's it's the very same. effective. I mean, look, I don't want to necessarily be exactly like my father. That's a whole podcast. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, pull quote. <laughs> But um, I do want to learn from him, you know, and so as we should all and we should all also learn from our, you know, children, both metaphorical and real. Mm -hmm. It's a whole therapy session. (laughs) Good stuff. Denizens of the following universe. Good stuff. Cool. Your Um, weekly therapy episode. Are you the Dammerung or the Verstehnis? So there were a few. (laughs) Wow. There were a few things that I wanted to mention that are just like, like hype, like there's no real need to talk about them so much as like things I wanted to mention about the book that I either really liked or like Mm -hmm. made me think of something. One in particular was he talks about this like Richard Feynman thing of like being able to count it multiple times. Mm -hmm. And that is from, I know because I've watched this clip on YouTube a bunch of times, this clip on YouTube, which is Richard Feynman talking about the story of him learning how to count multiple times in his head by using like different kind of imagery. Like, like he, he first learns that when he counts, he counts audibly. Mm -hmm. He talks to one of his professors and he, and you know, he talks, he talks to one of his professors about how hard it is to both keep count and also like hold a conversation. And his professor says, that's the easiest thing in the world. Mm. And he finally figures out it's because his professor like literally like flips numbers in his head, like visually like sees like cards of with the number like pop up. There's no auditory signal whatsoever. So Richard Feynman goes, I wonder if I can do both and eventually teaches himself to count two different things at the same time, one audibly and one visually or to count using both of them so he can either hold a conversation and then he'll just be counting in pictures and then like he can read a book and he'll just be counting in words and he can kind of like flip back and forth between these two. Oh, wow. um, so that's actually like this real clip that exists. That's really cool and is worth like Googling. And there's a bunch of clips from this like lecture series that it's an interview actually that Richard Feynman does. Another really cool clip from this is um, it's about 
uh, the the interviewer asks him like what what magnets like why magnet magnets repel and he gives this like really long thing and like why it feels like there's something there and you know the the eventual answer is it feels like there's something there for the same reason when there's something there it feels like something mm-hmm. there it's still it's the same magnetic force in both cases yeah you know the reason you can press against a book and get pressed back is because of electrons just like two magnets like press against each other. Um, and so that that is a really cool like lecture series for folks who l- liked that part of the book or interviews, whatever. Cool. That's awesome. That reminds me of another thing I wanted to talk about with this book. It's kind of another sort of sort of capsule thing, mm-hmm. which is that there were several very, very specific references to Gödel Escher Bach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Reisterkar, yeah. um the uh, uh, um there was also just the the like recursion element of yes, like yes, popping of course. in and That's out of narratives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The recursion thing, uh, Reister Car, um, and uh, the idea of oh, also the ant brain in Girdle Escher Bach reminded mm. me a lot of like Nomon. This idea of like a, a yeah. single thing that was a bunch right. of different humans all networked. Yeah, and it's really interesting to. It was really interesting to me for me to read that because Girdle Escher Bach is a very very influential book that I don't see in fiction ever. Mm-hmm. It's very, very rare for, I actually can't think of another example of a work of fiction that I have ever read that made specific reference to that book. Doesn't Even though Anathem, a, I want to say Anathem does. That might be the one. I, I wouldn't be that surprised actually, because that, that would be the other one. But um, that would make sense. But it's still pretty rare. So it was, it was intriguing to sort of see it referenced here, but it also was a little bit annoying. <laughs> <laughs> And the reason it was annoying is because that book is that book had a big impact on me when I read it. And I think that it does not hold up mm-hmm. nearly as well as some other things. I mean, I think it's dated, basically. It's very old. Yeah. It's, it'll be it's, it'll be actually interesting to look at Nomon like, you know, 30, 40 years from that's now. That's exactly like, what I, how yeah, dated exactly. I was. Feel. So it makes me mm-hmm. wonder, you know, how much how timeless do we think this book is? How much is it? Mm. How is it? too specifically a product of exactly now or how well do we think it will hold up i think it will hold up really well for like five to ten years and then feel very dated but like will have influenced a whole bunch of things is going to be my guess so what about some of these other books that we've mentioned i mean a book like if on a winter's night a traveler seems like it's held up very well although Mm -hmm. it's very different from books that are published now and perhaps people would disagree with me that I, that it's held up. Uh, I mean, it's not, it certainly doesn't have the kind of propulsive quality that a lot of modern Pomo stuff does. But it still, I mean, it's still compelling. Dahlgren certainly holds up now Mm. 40 something years Mm. after its creation, Mm. even though it is very much a product of New York in a specific moment in the Mm. seventies. It's interesting. because I feel like, and I'm going to get, totally mobbed about this but i feel like infinite jest actually is holding up less and less well over Mm -hmm. time too like that's something that i think like pieces of it hold up really well especially when he's talking about drug addiction and alcohol addiction Mm -hmm. and the like subcultures around addiction and just how the like not like what the elements of those subcultures are but how generally those subcultures work but then i i i remember the just the last time i read it feeling the sense of oh this feels like science fiction talking about a certain point in time that has like passed 
mm-hmm. you know, right. I mean, and, and not in the sense of like, oh, it's set in like 2016 and it's not the world of 2016 in reality, more so just the it's sense fun of to read that in 2016. Or right. It, or whatever, it can yeah. be, but it yeah. also, it felt like it's so much about this idea of like, well, TV is going to like suck everyone in when, mm-hmm. you know, we built up defenses against it and like other things started doing the same thing. And I, and I feel like he almost YouTube this, sucks everyone. In. Right. And it, but there's almost this like, you know, kind of pessimism about like the immediacy as opposed to like a meta pessimism that, that didn't quite work the last well, time I read it. it. It That's an, it's a really interesting question about that, but we could definitely have a lot of podcasts about that. But because <laughs> on the one hand, there's a, there's a, a cyclic sort of attack defend thing going on in the culture, people being attacked by new kinds of, slot machines and coming up with new ways to defend themselves and so on. But there's also, it's also true that, um, that there are eras where attackers have the advantage and eras where defenders have the advantage and it, you know, you could argue, and and it's possible that were he still alive, David Foster Wallace would argue this because certainly he saw Twitter before he died, I think. But, um, nowadays, you know, he certainly saw YouTube. Um, nowadays, um, the, uh, you know, you could argue that the attacker has the advantage. You could argue that um, for all that we are developing these new forms of defense, nonetheless, if you go on YouTube, I think there was there was a uh, some kind of study done. I don't remember if it was by the Berkman Center or by whom, but somebody did a study of sort of degrees of separation from Alex Jones on YouTube. Oh, yeah. And they're not that many. No. No matter where you start. Hmm. Yeah. This is, you know, just by going by recommendations, mm-hmm. sort of following a chain of recommendations on YouTube. Yeah. Same for the Jordan Peter. It's like YouTube yeah. like pushes you towards the right. Because right. the right's gotten really good at, you very know. specific kinds of content tend to be really attractive mm-hmm. to recommendation and Also weirdly, Flat Earth. It's like you're never that far away from Flat Earth on yeah. YouTube. And all of which is, um, I mean, there's a genealogy and a history there too, right? Like the rights doubling down on VCR-based recruitment and mm-hmm. distribution mm-hmm. in the 80s and early 90s is inseparable, I think, from its positioning. Yeah, fundraising in, by mail was yeah. huge. Oh, also talk radio, but like, yeah. right, right. Like, Jones yeah. is just right, talk yeah. radio for YouTube. Right, yeah. controlling. So, so none of it's coming out of nowhere. And in some sense, yeah. the increasing move to platforms that require a certain level of currency buy-in to set yourself up like video is expensive you need podcasts even are expensive but video is even more expensive you need sets you need people who look like they can be on a video screen you need editing and production and although the weird thing is a lot of youtube you don't i mean you have the like sargon of akkads and like how many guys who are just like you know like on their iphone earbuds like talking in their like gross living rooms even jordan peterson does that kind of shit frequently and gets from his unclean living room (laughs) right yeah god um so so yeah no that's that's a good point but i think that um in Infinite Jest's case, while the television hasn't sucked us in in that quite mm-hmm. same way, the sort of slow domination of video as mm. the thing that the internet does has started to be shift us back in that direction. And I think right. the notion behind the entertainment and that fundamental critique yeah, entertainment of large. American um, well, and also, interest I mean, in like, comfort or, or yeah. interest in sort of the pleasure principle. Like, 
the the idea of the president being this like Vegas crooner. Yeah. I mean, like how many steps away is that from like a reality TV star being president? <laughs> right. You know, they, so there's it's pretty similar. Honestly, a lot of this stuff about media to me is the stuff that holds up the best. Really? So the one thing that I think he fails on is the idea that media will be this like thing where you're always alone being broadcast mm, images yeah. from other people, as opposed mm -hmm. to this thing that part of the addiction is actually the engagement with him. Part of the real addiction to yeah. something like Twitter is right. being able to like ping back and forth with people. Even if you never actually get anything back, it's like this cycle and this loop that happens. Mm. Right. I mean, it takes the slot machine and it makes the slot, it makes the reward social engagement. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you put something yeah. out into Twitter and you get some number of social coins back right um, and so like a twitter zombie looks different than a tv zombie no, that's true that's true yeah that's more very hunched true. yeah you know, less reclined <laughs> right. yeah yep. a little more nervous Sorry. I'm, I, you know on the same subject i'm fascinated by books that haven't held up so to speak mm -hmm. and the ways in which they haven't i i think earlier this summer i read the drowned world by james g ballard which is a right. science fiction book that was very influential, I think, over a long period of time, but which, you know, if you read it now, is incredibly, incredibly over-the-top racist. Like, well, yeah. okay. <laughs> really, not, like, so far beyond the pale. Right. <laughs> I mean, I don't even want to really talk about the details because it's so bad, but... It's really it's interesting because I've read only his short stories and from his short stories that I've read, I, I've never gotten that. And obviously, I'm, I'm not yeah. to take away from it at all, but it's it's sometimes interesting with this kind of thing, just like how that can exist in one place and be like totally invisible from like the author's work somewhere else. Right. But I always wonder, it's like, Oh, am I getting some of that through the invisible places? Like it's not visible or legible to me, but yeah. like, to what degree am I getting it? I know. Yeah, this is, yeah. and, but so from a certain perspective, this is exactly the dimension, right? This is the right. other dimension we're not seeing. Right. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? This is, this is the, the, you know, the question, you know, what will people of 50 years from now think mm -hmm. is wrong with the way we talk? Is a really interesting question and also kind of a question that is difficult. Uh, it's really difficult. It's one of those sort of like pop philosophy questions, almost like a barroom question, a question you're sitting around bullshitting over a drink with somebody and you 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 kind of talk about it and you don't get anywhere and that's fine because it's mm -hmm. just entertaining. I really wonder how you make any you get any purchase with a question like that. But what we can do is definitively is we can look back in time and sort of think concretely about books that have come and gone and how they have come and gone. Mm. It's really interesting to me that the particular way that books tend to come and go is their description of relationships between people. That's sort of, mm -hmm. I think that comes out to me as one of the ways that books lose classic status is if mm -hmm. their description of relationships has a kind of fundamentally shallow quality. Yeah. Um, the, the, the thing with the drowned world is that, you know, there aren't there isn't much in the way of relationships in the book. And so, you know, I, the, the, the racism exists as part of this lack of properly described relationships or like deeply described relationships. And I think I wonder to what extent this book has that problem. Um, I think Infinite Jest, at the very least, is. There are some characters in that book that stick out and some relationships in that book that stick out. Oh, totally. Um, 
the the book that this is actually reminding me of have have either of you read um the goldfinch by donna tart i haven't no no okay i've read secret history right so so goldfinch was started by her soon after secret history was finished and she wrote it over like 10 15 years something Mm -hmm. like that and published it i think in 2015 or 2016 and i read it soon after it came out and it had this really really glaring problem which is it's about kids i mean it's about high school students like Mm. the character is a high school student through the 2000s and the internet has never mentioned cell phones are never mentioned like you know no social media there's this huge anachronism and and to the point that and this makes it worse actually at one point facebook is mentioned in the text and there's a reason given for why this kid isn't on facebook so instead of letting it exist in this timeless way it's Mm -hmm. instead just like oh she clearly doesn't get it and can't write it but like wants to write kids anyway and it for me it like i didn't really like the book anyway but that ruined the book for me it was it was like dated before it even came out in this Mm -hmm. really like wild Mm -hmm. way that I, i think is you know probably really hard for adult authors who are writing in that particular time period. Like a lot easier for like, you know, us elder millennials than it is for like the Gen Xers, like who are writing then. It's the difficulty of, for the YA authors also of like maintaining that voice. Mm. I I was going to ask you, Max, as an author yourself, who's thought about putting yourself into different kinds of characters that may be very different from you. How do you think about, the responsibility of the author and the role of the author. This is a very big question, I know, but how do you think? <laughs> Easy you, question there. Yeah, definitely I, the two know, and a half hour mark question. Yeah, yeah. I would say, uh, you know, well, we need a reason to stay here for another two and a half hours. <laughs> um, wow. Okay, so that's a big question. Um, a line that gets passed around a bunch in science fiction right now and that I think is pretty um, strong. And I've, you know, Mary Robinette Cole said this specifically and I, I am wondering, I don't know if it's original with her, but let's, let's, she's the one of the people that I heard it from first. Uh, it's just that it's not about, um, it's not about adding diversity. It's about adding realism. Like mm-hmm. what you're attempting to do is, make the book more representative of the world that really is around you rather than the world that you think is around you because you're sort of marinating in white supremacy, um, all the curiarchical axes. And curiarchy, for those in the podcast audience who may not be familiar, is a word from Elizabeth Schaessler Fiorenza's biblical criticism, but it loosely means um, sort of systems of of lordship very loosely construed. So sexism, racism, um, ableism, all of these different, the different ways that you're oppressed and the tendency of society to try to structure itself around oppressions. Um, also the root of the name of the character. Curious, yes. Constantine in this book. It's true. <laughs> so... So, so that's definitely an aspect of it. Um, personally, I think there are a lot of sorts of being that I, as a straight white cis man, have a 
um, decided disadvantage when I am trying to write just sort of off the top of my head. Um, basically anyone who doesn't line up with that, my first instincts, the sort of instincts, it doesn't line up with sort of my gender presentation, orientation in the world, whatever. Many of my first instincts, my sort of uneducated instincts about what a character would do in a situation are probably going to be um, wrong or at least are going to be informed by the culture that I've lived in mm -hmm. and the culture that I've grown up in. And no matter how mm -hmm. much you travel and no matter how much you learn, no matter how many people you talk to, you have to face the fact that that is a uh, weakness that you're always going to run into. Tough to shift your connectome yes. <laughs> on a dime. It is, it is true. It is hard to do that. Conversely, things like travel, forming good friendships, expanding your sense of who you are, expanding who you hang out with, um, or just sort of leaning into your connections with other people who don't look, act, screw, whatever desire like you do, makes you, gives you that kind of, um, gives you the strength to start working on mm -hmm. these characters. I mean, f so... That's a lot of abstraction. I mean, one thing that I fundamentally do is if I have friends who correspond to the characters that I'm trying to write, I don't feel as scared writing them, not because I think I have some artificial authority, but because I can always in the back of my head have this question like, what would this person mm -hmm. think if they read this? If they read me writing this, like not as some abstract sort of cultural products, like on a shelf somewhere, mm -hmm. some random individual. But what would my friend, you know, what would my friend Marley think if she read right. this book? That's I like that so much better than the attitude of like, oh, what would Marley do in this character's shoes? Mm -hmm. But right. because that turns her into this, right. you know, avatar for all whatever people. But here mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's just like, oh, like. Would she be offended or not? Would she take issue or not? Would, right. would you know? Is this like, will people who feel this way read this and be happy or not? And that's I like that a lot. It, for me, it shifts the question from being one about kind of market capitalism, from mm -hmm. being one about mm -hmm. um, you know the creation of a product for a target audience. And then you start getting into like who is the target audience? What demographics? And you're like, those are a lot of deeply uncomfortable questions. And they're questions mm -hmm. that I think should be asked a lot more, especially in the sort of consumer genres in science fiction, fantasy, and mystery. Like, what does your presumed reader look like? What is that really what your presumed reader looks like? What does your actual reader look like? It, but nevertheless, um, shifting away from that kind of uh, system to something that feels a lot more like a gift economy. For me, I don't know how other writers feel about it, but for me... Um, a book, a story is always fundamentally a gift to friends. That's what it is before it's anything else. So you think about your friends when you're preparing something that you want to give to them. And that keeps it honest. It, it, it makes it more like the story that the storyteller is telling in the great hall after a feast mm -hmm. to which he or she has been invited. Mm -hmm. And you don't have any arbitrary, you don't have any authority. You don't have any lordship here. You're just trying to do a thing. And in my case, I think it's really important to try to do a thing that gives your friends space to see themselves and to sort mm -hmm. of inhabit in the story. 
That feels very important to me. There are, as a result, some things that I won't write about too much. I think that there are areas that are much easier for me to present and make people feel welcome in. What am I talking about? Like the specific sorts of angles of oppression that people are going to experience because of the color of their skin, because of their gender presentation and orientation, because of their, um, because of their sex or race. Those are things that I haven't had a great deal of hard experience with. And it would be very hard for me to present a space in which I would feel like a friend would be able to find themselves welcome or even find themselves recognized. Mm-hmm. Um, but that still leaves an enormous amount of human territory to cover. The author Andrea Hairston has a refrain about how everyone knows how it feels to bite into a peach. Now, the feeling of biting into a fresh peach, a ripe peach, will have different meanings for a lot of different people. It will have a bunch of different implications depending on your cultural background, whether you grew up with peaches or not, all that kind of stuff. But that sense experience can be a really strong anchor. And, you know, everybody knows what it feels sort of to run away from bees. Um, <laughs> so there are some human experiences that you I can never have access run. to. <laughs> you walk Just away from bees. Enjoy the sting. <laughs> I am a bee. <laughs> Max has written something about bees as well. Oh, gosh. We can not discuss or discuss <laughs> at, as you oh, like. Oh, right, right. Bees <laughs> are coming. Um, so, yeah, that's a beginning of the way that I think about it anyway. Cool. I really like that a lot. Is there anything else? Are there any other, like, short moments from Nomon we want to point out? Oh man! Anything more to talk about? Uh, it is the three-hour mark of recording. Oh so. gosh, <laughs> I, there's certainly something that I'm going to think of about 15 minutes oh, after yeah, no, we There's going to be like a million stop, <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I just, I really like this book. I'm not certain what it'll look like 50 years down the line. Mm-hmm. I think that you're right on kind this, of an unfair question in a lot of ways. Yeah, but. well, I think you're right on the nose with the point about relationships mm-hmm. and. Um, I think that's part of the reason that, for example, Jane Austen is still going to be read a hundred years from now. Mm -hmm. And I'm not as confident that like maybe many Heinlein books will be. I don't know. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's entirely possible that I'll be surprised. But, But like Jane Austen has survived many of the material conditions that created Jane Austen. Yeah. Like right. The, um, the sign, the sort of, the constraints on the women in the stories are no longer constraints on most women in English speaking society. The constraints on the men, the way that property is handled, the way that capital works are no longer quite the ways that it works. Mm -hmm. And yet nevertheless, Pride and Prejudice remains a story that can be told and retold and has been told and retold. Mm -hmm. With this, I think the core relationships are actually the relationships between the characters and the relationships across the lines yeah it's it's interesting because the relationships are not kind of like with infinite jest the Mm -hmm. plot happens off screen here the relationships kind of happen off screen in the tensions between these characters right and i think that that might have i think that that might have legs in part because i think that's a way that so many of us relate Mm -hmm. to people these days to friends i mean there are people who i've seen three times since college who are still 
lived experiences in my life in part because, you know, I, you know, I follow my friend Celia's Instagram feed, you know, mm-hmm. things like that, like humans who are alive, who are there, who I care about and would care if they were gone, but who I'm not in regular human discourse with. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot of that um, in this book. And uh, I don't know, I, yeah. I suspect that that'll have some legs. Yeah. To me, the the core relationship in this book is between author and reader. Yes. Also true. And like, and I, I and you know, that's, that may seem, you know, it, it, it's tempting for me to think that the particular relationship between author and reader at a certain, in a certain time and place is, is a, is, is so much a function of the political economy of media in that time and place. Mm-hmm. Plus the, um, nature of the popular culture in that time and place. But I think that there are core relationship concerns that are, that, that last, that, that are more timeless than that between author and reader. I think, for example, when you think about books that are talking directly at you in a particular way that are really, really old, Mm -hmm. a lot of religious texts, a Mm -hmm. lot of um, maybe a memoir or a letter, something that's obviously talking directly at you, uh, you you can see this more easily. You know, there are, if it's good enough, if, if it, if what it's, if the relationship it has with the reader, the sort of fictional reader in many cases is, complicated enough and real enough then then yeah i can see that even if that's the only thing it has i can see that lasting mm-hmm. cool i think that might be a good note to yeah i think so i was gonna say you know thank you for the gift of coming on here yeah. and talking about this um thank you for hosting me. i would have been, been oppressed yeah. i would have been oppressed by your absence <laughs> <laughs> it's a joke it's a joke it's a joke guys sorry <laughs> Um, so yeah, this has been Spectology. You can find us at Spectology Pod on Twitter. You can find, you can email us at uh, spectologypod at gmail.com. Uh, we appreciate reader comments and, you know, concerns and corrections and, you know, questions and all this stuff. And we'll, we'll take them and usually answer them on a future pod. Um, you know, thanks again, Max. Uh, do you want to do you want to plug one last time your stuff? Or... Yeah, sure. I mean, um, so Bookburners season four is coming around to a close as this will be launching. So that's a great place to look for me. Nice. Bookburners is great. Good stuff. Check it out. Also, the craft sequence. Yes, that's true. Ruin of Angels most recently, and more books forthcoming. And coming out next May, Empress of Forever from Tor Books. Yeah, so that excited. sounds really cool. So you know, excited. I'm looking forward to that one. Um, and then, you know, I, I <laughs> uh, we've we've been talking about Nomon here. I think next month we can say that we're talking about uh, Yoon Ha Lee's Nine Fox Gambit. I think I got that right. I haven't read it yet, so Matt has. It's great. It's so good. Yeah, big and, fans. And hopefully our friend Ellie will be on for that. So that should be a really fun yeah, conversation. Yeah, she'll have a really cool, interesting perspective, I think. Right, right. Um, yeah, so we'll be doing that next month. We'll you know have something next week short and sweet. Um, yeah, until then, you know, we've, we've been spectacular. I fucking hate ending this podcast. I'm just turning this off. <laughs> <laughs>